Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. My guest this week is the founder of the Bitcoin Times and the mobile Bitcoin app Amber, as well as the author of the Uncommunist Manifesto, Alexander Svetsky. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. The, the line that will define those who are free and those in the modern gulags is going to be those who hold Bitcoin and those who do not. It's as simple as that. Like if you're stuck with a government form of currency, where I, I don't think people realize that money represents human action. It's the most fundamental level of speech. Like we all talk about, you know, we're freedom of speech maximalists, but more important is your action. Like you, don't tell me, I don't care what you say, show me your bank account and I'll tell you what you believe. And when an institution, when an organization can issue, manage and dictate what you can and cannot do with your money, which is where central bank digital currencies are going, by the way, which is what you know, all our friends like Jerome and Christine would like fuck to. The fuck the Fed, that's right, brother. <laughs> fuck the Fed and fuck all of them. Um, what they want is complete control of your action because they think you're all ants. They think you're all worthless. They think you don't matter. They think that they know what's better for you than you do for yourself. And when we give them the ability to direct where our human action goes, when they can just turn off your bank account because you have an opinion other than what theirs is, that's the ultimate gulag. That's, that was like, Hitler's, Stalin, Mao's dream. And these idiots, these morons, are doing it under the guise of we're all in this together, we all have to help each other, all this other bullshit that they try and feed you on TV. Like, it's that system, or it's Bitcoin, where you get to choose what the fuck you want to do with your own life. And that's as simple as it gets. So, fuck it, I'll finish there. Let's go to you. <laughs> We've all heard the saying, money is the root of all evil. We've also heard the revised version, the love of money is the root of all evil. Regardless of the truth of either of these statements, we all acknowledge that money and evil are somehow linked. Money has the power to guide men towards evil behavior. On the surface, this isn't much of a realization. Money leads to evil? Tell me something I don't know, Will. But if we look a little deeper, we might find an important question given the increasing centralization of our globalizing world. What if the mere existence of money itself, regardless of the quantity, can be used to drive men to evil behavior? What if the money can be manipulated before your very eyes, like magic, to bias you to do evil with it instead of good? What would that do to the world? Here's a riddle. Let's say I put a $100 bill in your hands and that we agreed to stand there for a while and stare at it 
until something important about it changed. What would change first? I'll speed this up a bit and give you the answer. The material characteristics of the money wouldn't change, not its size, weight, or color. But the immaterial characteristics of it would change, namely its value. With the power of inflation, we wouldn't have to stand there very long until the purchasing power of that $100 bill became much less. But how does that drive men to evil behavior? Well, if the money is worth more today than it will be tomorrow, what are you more likely to do? Spend it or save it? If you can use it to buy $100 worth of something today versus $99 worth of something tomorrow, you're more likely to spend it. And since money is an expression of freedom of choice, the manipulation of money in this way guides your choices to think more about the present instead of building towards the future. The ramifications of present versus future-based thinking are far too vast for me to get into in one monologue, but they're so significant. Jordan Peterson did an entire Bible series lecture about it regarding Cain and Abel, which I'll link to in the show notes. But this is how, without doing anything at all, the nature of the money itself can be used to bias men towards a satisfaction of their present impulses versus considering the future. And this in turn biases men towards evil actions because how many of our most evil deeds were done out of impulse versus long-term planning? In fact, I'd reckon that many of our most sinful actions were based on impulse. I know mine are. So if our money can be manipulated to make us not think about the future, then maybe something in money really is the root of all evil. And Bitcoin fixes this. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Alexander Svetsky, and he's an entrepreneur, podcast host, publisher, and the author of the new book, The Uncommunist Manifesto. He's become popular and well-known in the Bitcoin space for his outspoken, direct, and aggressive defense of the Bitcoin community. In other words, a so-called toxic maximalist, which makes him my kind of guy. Because he understands how important Bitcoin is, not just from a global finance perspective or from a technological perspective or even from a sovereignty perspective, but from a moral perspective in terms of the lives and choices of the individual men who hold or hodl it. And his new book, The Uncommunist Manifesto, is a rallying war cry for those men and women to build a society on the back of a currency that is not only resistant to the manipulation of us towards evil, but that cultivates us towards the good. Yes, number go up is good, but responsibility go up is better. And communism go down might be the best. In our conversation, Alex and I discussed his hard knock upbringing and Steve Jobs moment how Bitcoin is both an attractor and accelerant for personal growth, time preference and morality, how savings is the cornerstone of civilization, Bitcoin's new RGU technology, Bushido or the way of the warrior, and of course his new book, The Uncommunist Manifesto. This conversation is a great companion piece to my episode with Laser Hoddle, Reset, and the Renaissance, which you can find linked in the show notes. But both these chats are not designed for Bitcoin newbies. For those among you who haven't yet ramped up on Bitcoin, I recommend my podcast with Carlos Fenman, The Bitcoin Coach, which is also in the show notes. I also strongly recommend his six-week Bitcoin coaching, which was my orange pill and led me here today. You need to understand the basics before you can develop an effective personal Bitcoin strategy, and his course is the fastest way to get the basics down. Bitcoin's value will start going up again. It's inevitable. 
so I'd train with Carlos now before you miss this current sale. Check the link in the description to find out more how the Bitcoin Coach can help. This episode is sponsored by my 12-week men's renaissance coaching. There is more in you, and I want to help you discover it for yourself, for your community, for your family, and for the glory of God who made you. I'm offering a new promotion. If your outlook on life as a man isn't profoundly changed in two conversations, you get your money back. Keep listening to find out more or email info at renofmen.com to schedule a free 30-minute consultation. And if you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. Please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and a rating on Spotify. And if you're watching this video on YouTube, hit the like and subscribe buttons now. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Ren of Men or subscribe to my mailing list by visiting my website at renofmen.com newsletter. A quick note before we begin. Alex was moving house before we recorded this podcast and things didn't go exactly as planned. As YouTube viewers will see, Alex had to do the podcast from inside the walk-in closet at his new apartment. It had been a bit of a long day, but we decided to go ahead with the conversation to make sure my listeners heard it in time for the release of the Uncommunist Manifesto so you can be part of the fun. When you listen to this podcast, the book should be available for public sale. There's a link at the top of the show notes, so I'd like to ask that everyone listening head over to Amazon right now, pick it up, read it, and if you feel called, leave a five-star review so we can help get this important work into more hands. Because as I think you'll see, as urgent as the financial case for Bitcoin is, the moral case is just as urgent, if not more. What if we stopped saying, money is the root of all evil? What if we could say in our hearts, money made us good? That's the case that Alex makes, so I hope you'll hear him out. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, the author of the Uncommunist Manifesto, Alex Svetsky. Alex Svetsky, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Mr. Will, thank you for having me on. Uh, I always love talking to Bitcoin guys because the subject matter goes literally everywhere. Um, but I always like to start out with um, it, men's individual journey to Bitcoin because I think it's always really informative for people who are listening, who are pre-coiners, who are exploring the ideas. Like, what was it that really helped you uh, get to the point that you're at right now? And we'll get to we'll discuss what that is later with your book and some of the other things that you talk about. Yeah. So, I, I guess to to clarify the question where I am today with respect to Bitcoin or just more broadly, uh, my viewpoint on life. Oh, that's a great, that's a great clarification. Let's start with Bitcoin. Um, uh, and because then it, it branches out from there. Yeah, cool. So I think for me, there was a couple things since I was a younger kid, like, you know, my parents went through a really rough breakup and there was mm. this whole, um, custody crap like we went between my mom my dad my mom my dad multiple times and i had what i would call a you know a masculine father in the sense that um you know he he had presence but he was kind of like a tyrannical masculine you know kind of like a boy in mm. a sense where you know he'd lash out beat the shit out of my mom and all this sort of stuff so you know it, it kind I'm of sorry. had a had it's all good it, it had like a an effect on me and my brother in an interesting way and and growing up in my teens, I was kind of both a troublemaker, but also a goody two shoes. Like, and and I was naturally really academically intelligent, 
Um, but I was also street smart because I had to get street smart. You know, when my, my parents split up, I ended up with my dad, my brother and sister with my mom. So I had to mm-hmm. kind of like find my way and basically manage not to get, you know, my ass kicked by him and kind of had to, you know, learn to speak and all this sort of shit. And anyway, I, I ended up leaving his place, obviously went to go take care of my grandmother, uh, and a lot of responsibility sort of fell on my shoulders because she was dying from fucking 10 different diseases and there was no one there to look after her. Wow. So I'm this okay. like 16-year-old kid uh, going to, I was in high school uh, in this weird uh, kind of like really posh area where she lived. Um, but I was kind of like this outside of bad boy, you know, kind of almost if you ever watched that stupid show, The O.C., you know, like that kid mm-hmm. who comes in and he was the rough one, you know, came into this rich area. That's what I was like. I was this... Kind of got suspended on my first week of school and this and that. So I kind of like donned all these different things. But by the time I was 18, 19, moved out of home and had basically taken my scholarship money from university. And now looking back on it, I can say it. But back then I thought I was being smart. But I basically gambled my scholarship money on the stock market. Mm. Thought I was a genius. Within six or eight months, I'd turned like five grand into $50,000 um, you know, I, I thought I was king shit, uh, and I kind of did some extrapolatory mathematics. I was like, if I continue on this trajectory, I'll be a millionaire by the time I'm 20. And kind of the pre 2008 tremors kicked in 2007, wiped me the fuck out. Uh, I ended up then levering up margin call after margin call. Anyway, by the time my plan was to be a millionaire by the time I was 20, uh, by the time I was 20, I was actually a quarter of a million in debt. So I had the car in reverse. Uh, <laughs> didn't work out that way like, didn't quite. you know hmm. wrong way <laughs> yeah, so exactly. I took, took, took a left instead of a right <laughs> yeah exactly so so that kind of put me on a on an entrepreneurial path like the only way i could eat uh was to i had to pay the banks 1500 bucks a week uh before Oof. i could even you know before i could even eat so i did the only thing i could find on short notice was i went door knocking i went door-to-door sales selling fucking pay television. And mind you, I didn't have a TV. I lived on someone's fucking lounge room floor. Uh, I would get up in the morning. I'd train at the gym. I'd go knock on doors all day. I'd come home and then I'd study the markets and study like I'd read and try and figure out how did I go so wrong. And my life just went on all these different trajectories. And basically most of my life turned out to be entrepreneurial and driven by a necessity to find a way around red tape. And to kind of like when I there was a period of my life where I, I think the strongest male presence in my life was my uncle. He was a, he was a historian slash, I mean, he was with some revolutionary party in the Balkans at one point, you know, doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And he, he, I mean, he used to teach me, you know, things about women and stuff like that. It's like, you know, there's the four F's find them, fuck them, forget them or something like that, you know, like all this sort of stuff. So, you know, he, 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 you know, if there was a framed man, I know, right? But he was very framed. framed. Like he, he okay. knew how to like attract women, right? And yes. and the thing is, like I was I was you know shocked by this stuff. But he, he was an interesting influence in my life. But between sort of that influence, between you know the entrepreneurialism, between um, me, you know, trying to find a way. And what I was gonna, the reason I mentioned him was he taught me a lot about Alexander the Great. And there was one thing mm. about Alexander the Great that was interesting was he would always get to the fucking point. So there's the Gordian Knot story, obviously, where, mm-hmm. you know, he went to the city and they were like, he who can untie this knot before the sun uh, sets runs the thing. So, you know, and there'd be h- hundreds of people for hundreds of years 
didn't figure out how to do it. So he looked at the sun, looked at the knot, pulled out his sword and chopped the fucking thing open, right? <laughs> or the same thing when the Macedonians first went to fight the Persians. Uh, his whole thing is like he broke rank, grabbed a couple of the generals and they went straight for Darius. There was no fucking around and messing around fighting and that's how like a, an army of 35,000 beat an army supposedly five to ten times their size was went straight to the point so me i was always looking at ways to cut through the fucking red tape cut through the mess and get to the point so anyway this, this is a long way of kind of saying that mm. i was always entrepreneurial i always had to bear the responsibility of my own existence my own bills my own everything on myself and when i first discovered bitcoin i discovered it through basically a I mean, it was my second touch point. My first touch point, I was a gold silver guy in 2010, 2011, made a bunch of money out of that. But I kind of forgot about Bitcoin and all that shit because my life went on this whole software development type of space. I was building apps and all this other crap. And when Bitcoin hit me again was in 2015, where this junky friend of my brother's was talking about Bitcoin and he's you know, talking about how buying drugs on the dark net or whatever. And I was like, oh, wow that thing is still around? And he's like, yeah, man, you know, my friend made millions of dollars out of all this shit. And I was like, what the fuck? And I, and I remember I'd heard of it along the lines, right? Like, I don't know if it was Max Kaiser jumping up and down on a couch, you know, during my gold, gold and silver days or something. So as I started digging, I found this thing that was, you know, anti-fiat because I had a little bit of, you know, Austrian economic sort of rooting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It was anti-state, uh, anti-authoritarian government, you know, outside of the control. Like I found it really interesting that people were making payments online to buy things and someone wasn't able to stop them, censor them or something. I was like, fuck, that is pretty damn interesting. So mm-hmm. as I dug and dug and dug, you know, I, I had a relatively significant event in 2016 where I had one of the companies that I'd founded, I'd got pushed out of it by the board. Um, mm-hmm. because we had a disagreement on how to operate the business. And I was kind of at this, uh, you know, I had my, what I call my Steve Jobs moment, right? And I had this identity crisis. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing next? And yeah, like the, I doubled down into Bitcoin and I have this saying, which is I came for the money because I thought I was going to get rich, but I stayed for the money, realizing that the money is the most important technology of civilization and fixing that has all the downstream effects. So yeah, I think that kind of then led me down other rabbit holes, like, you know, Austrian economics and uh, sort of sound money principles. And, and a lot of things seem to kind of thread from that. The people who become quite fanatical about Bitcoin, as you kind of mentioned is, you know, they, they start thinking about what they're reading, how they're behaving, you know, morality, virtue, that there's a whole, Christian movement in the entire Bitcoin space and, you know, people who are deep in the Bitcoin philosophy, you know, they, yeah, there you go. So it's like, there is, there is a whole thing there. And, you know, every time you kind of pull on a bit of a thread, you, you know, you unwind another section of the rabbit hole. You're like, holy fuck, there's something else here. And (laughs) yeah, it's just, uh, it kept drawing me in. And then I guess to kind of close this loop off in the last two and a half, three years with the insanity going on in the world, the only community that I found that seemed to be very like, and it wasn't everyone. There was, you know, some real voices of reason and, and not to blow smoke up my ass, but I was one of those. I literally wrote an article in early March saying Corona didn't do it. And I, I talked about like, we're going to be looking back on this shit two years from now 
after we've decimated families, mm-hmm. economies, and you know markets and everything, and we're going to be blaming it on Corona when it, that mm-hmm. never did it. It was the overreach. And me, mm-hmm. Saifedean, and Francis Puglia, for example, Giacomo Zucca, like all in the Bitcoin space, we were all very vocal from the beginning. And I mean, I got fucking banned from Twitter and YouTube and all sorts of crap like that because right. of this. But I think that you know that sort of entry into bitcoin when it happened and the kind of the the north star that it gave me helped me see through all the crap that we've sort of enjoyed in the last couple of years and then in the process you know the the stark contrast between what you know the truth that something like bitcoin represents versus the lies that the existing world represents have you know in a sense radicalized me and then on that journey led me to other things. And here we are. I appreciate uh, hearing that story because, you know, one of the powerful things that I've encountered about Bitcoin is that it's, it's, it's for transformed men and it's transformative for men, right? So, uh, so men who have transformed shed skins, myself included, you know, um, laser who we have in common, Mm -hmm. you know, went through his own transformation. I went through my own transformation. And when I went, when I got there, I suddenly realized that Bitcoin was there and all the pieces of my life had led up to this point of me finally being able to understand what Bitcoin is and and was about. And if I hadn't gone on my own journey to really redeem my own past, I wouldn't have been ready to really receive the wisdom that is embodied in Bitcoin. And it sounds really strange to say that about something called Bitcoin, about digital Mm -hmm. money or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but there's this, there's this mystical, I don't know what the word is, mystical divine quality to it. And not only that, when I arrived at Bitcoin, it helped transform me further. And so oh, I always, yeah. yeah. And so I always love hearing men tell these stories because it seems to be just, just what's true um, yeah, it's, about, it's about a, the technology. Yeah, it's both, it's both an attractor, for, as exactly what you said, it's an attractor and an accelerant. And, and it's funny yes. you mentioned this because I was, um, me and Mark Moss, who we wrote the book together with, we were at a little meetup in, uh, in San Clemente last week. And someone asked that exact question. They're like, what what is it about Bitcoin that th- does it change people? Does it attract people? And exactly to your point, I said, you know, my answer to that was it's an attractor and an accelerant because me, like you, and like Laser, and like probably every other man out there, we've had to go through our own transformations. Like in my mid twenties, man, I was such a fucking bitch. Like I was such a <laughs> pussy. I was a total vegan. I was a fucking hippie. Like I went to. Go I wasn't on. a vegan, but yeah, same. Well, there you go. Like I I, I did that whole that whole thing. And, you know, I was such a pleaser. I was such a, you know, like I'd sit there cry over women and all this sort of crap, which, you know, I had to forge the, you know, the man that is here today and I'm still continually forging him. I think of that, uh, that sculpture. And I don't know who did this one, but it's the one where the guy is kind of chiseling himself out of the stone. Yes. I love that sculpture. And, And that's kind of how I envision you know, what men's role is in the world is that, you know, they need to chisel themselves into the best version of themselves. And it's like, oh, fuck, there's so many tangents I want to go on. But like, you know, I've just been doing like the French Revolution, looking through that history and just oh, seeing where feminism man. actually started. Bang. Um, yeah, dude, it's... Me too. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like wild. incredible. And, you know, this whole, like, I, I've recently come to think that the root of all evil or, or one of the roots of the tree of evil... Mm-hmm is this incessant need to help everyone and get in everyone's fucking business. And you see this with all people who are socialistically oriented, which 
where all this feminism, all this sort of shit emerged from was the French Revolution, this idea of like fucking mass equality, tearing down the patriarchy, um, you know, giving everyone the same voice, sameness, sameness, equality, equality. Mm-hmm. And this whole like move towards it is everyone's duty to help everyone. It's, no, it's not. Your fucking duty is to help yourself first, make yourself the best version of yourself, and then lead, you know, be an example for others to do the same. Because the more you fucking, mm-hmm. you know, blind, like, because I have nothing against people who want to go and help someone. I've got everything against people who try and force others to go and help someone. And this yes. is where taxation, all that sort of stuff is like, get the fuck out of my business. If you want to help someone, go and help them. But making it like law and mandate and all this sort of stuff, what it does is it creates like an irresponsible society. And, you know, I think the threat of responsibility is, you know, one that we can pull on. But anyway, I'll just back up for a second because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm about to like scatter into 10 different directions, but <laughs> been so there, much here been we there. can hit. Yeah. Oh, I mean, uh, this is something that I think a lot about. I think about uh, dependence, independence, and in- interdependence. Mm-hmm, and so... Mm-hmm. Um, and that goes from, I think these are the stages of developmental psychology, how it mirrors in, in men's lives. We, be, we all begin, men and women, in a stage of dependence. We are totally dependent on our mother, right? Mm-hmm. Without, without mm-hmm. mom, we die, right? Yeah. And then at about age seven to 10, something like that, we're taken from the world of the mother into the world of the father. And we're meant to learn independence, right? Mm-hmm. And a man who succeeds in his journey of independence, who becomes sovereign and embodied, is able to be interdependent with other sovereign men. That's mm-hmm. the complete journey of development, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so we see this reflected in our society now where we have this hyper-feminized society that's trying to keep everyone dependent and actually shames independent men to prevent Absolutely. them from ever becoming interdependent, interdependent. with each other, right? And so, and so we're, we're stuck in this feminized kind of world where it's like, no, 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 don't, don't be independent. We all have to be in this together. We all have to be safe together. Don't listen to those you know, scary independent, they're bad, toxic masculinity, right? That whole thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is, I mean, it's, it's exactly psychologically represented as well. Everything you're talking about, this feminization that keeps us weak and dependent on a system like a mother. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the thread of responsibility. So recently I've started thinking about Bitcoin more than just freedom money. So in the past, mm-hmm. for, for a long time, I've called it freedom money, freedom money, freedom money. But I've, I've got an article, which I've got to hurry up and finish, but it's called uh, Responsibility Go Up Technology. And there's, there's, a, there's, a meme, there's a meme in Bitcoin, which I'm sure you know of, but for the listeners who haven't heard of it, they, the Bitcoiners started calling Bitcoin, you know, because everyone kind of like, oh, so what's so special about Bitcoin? You know, Bitcoin is as we do. We just meme everything. So it's got this unique thing called NGU technology and people are like, oh, what's that? It's like <laughs> number go up, you know, yeah. just what it does. It goes up and to the right. Yeah. Um, and I think that was a fantastic meme and it's going to stay true for, you know, decades, most likely. Mm-hmm. The the thing is, I think there's a, there's a deeper meme and this is this RGU technology, like responsibility go up technology. And for me, this is where I think about Bitcoin and I think about what it represents. And I think about it in terms of this idea of like masculine money. Like mm-hmm. the, the masculine existence, and I think the highest virtue of masculinity is responsibility. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, maybe maybe there's some semantics there, you know, like, you know, one could argue freedom or integrity or whatever. But, like, I think responsibility is up there, at least with the top three of the virtues of the masculine. It's like, mm-hmm. as, as Joe says, you know, the, a man must bear responsibility of all things, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that, to me, is just so profoundly important. And 
What Bitcoin does, and, and I used to say it in different words a couple of years ago. I, you know, people used to ask me, well, what do you think the most important thing about Bitcoin is? And I used to say, man, it's the reintroduction of economic consequence. And I said, that doesn't sound pretty, but what it mm. means is that Bitcoin will usher in a time in human civilization where the reward or the, uh, you know, the risk and consequence of your actions will actually be borne by you, not by anybody else. In the mm -hmm. world we live in today, what we do is we, we uh, vote in bureaucrats or, you know, bureaucrats take power without a vote, whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. Then they make uh, collective economic and political decisions, which are paid for by all of us. And when they go wrong, which they go wrong 99.9% .9 of the time, uh, we pay for them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then um, as we pay for them, we get impoverished. And they just print more money. And because they don't feel the consequence, they do it again. And we have this vicious loop of basically the decay of society through the socialization of consequence and the removal of responsibility and agency of the individual. And yes. I guess this is what you said earlier, is that we can't even get to the interdependence of man because we don't even have independence of man anymore. We've given mm -hmm. up agency to some institution known as the state or the central bank or the government or whatever fucking talking head is sitting there. And as we've done that, we've become a race of irresponsible, overgrown children, basically, because mm -hmm. all the men have left the room. Mm -hmm. And coming back to Bitcoin, it's like the ultimate responsible money. Not only is it responsible at the macro scale, which is if I go and do something stupid, let's say I run a territory, I run a you know a city, for example. Let's just say Bitcoin has become so valuable, I have the the ability to run a city. I still, if I make a dumb decision, I cannot socialize the dumb decision on everybody else. I'll have spent mm -hmm. my own Bitcoin. There's no money printed to print. There's no way to forcibly tax, and there's no way to borrow Bitcoin from some magical future. It doesn't exist. Like so, at a macro scale. It enforces responsibility and it localizes consequence and cost. And then at a micro scale, as an individual, I always say this to people. I'm like, do, do you want to know how like uh, real Bitcoin is? Get some Bitcoin, send it to an Ethereum address, and then call the Bitcoin support hotline and see if anyone's going to help you. Wait on hold for a while. Correct. It doesn't exist. So, so basically, <laughs> the entire onus of Bitcoin is... On you, like when you act like yes. you have massive responsibility, it's all yours. You actually, for the first time in history, hold your own money, like your own keys is your own money. No power on earth, no powers that we know of in the universe can uh, alter the mathematics that, you know, is that is, you know, that makes the sanctity of that holding uh, valid. And as a result, you know, the whole, the old Spider-Man saying with great power comes great responsibility. Like you have mm. the ultimate responsibility. So it, it kind of thinking about it that way, I just think of this whole responsibility go up technology meme. And then as a, as a subset to that is the whole essence of masculinity is taking responsibility. And to me, like Bitcoin just seems to be this, I don't know, this force that will re- that will come back into society and reinstantiate the the patriarchy and the and, and masculine frame to a large degree because you'll have responsible adults come back in and only they will have the opportunity to prosper because those who are irresponsible will be economically damaged. Whereas in the last 150 years, those who were irresponsible managed to get an economic edge, while those who were responsible 
we lost our savings. We lost all, all this stuff. We weren't, we weren't able to act responsibly. Um, mm-hmm. The world's been upside down. So that to me is a, is a, is a profound idea. That's an incredibly profound idea. All of that, because it brings back into the realm of, uh, of masculinity, the notion of consequence, like your economic and financial decisions have real consequence. There's no, there's no, no printing money to bail, to bail you out. There's no cantle on effect. There's none of that. It's, it's that when you make, when you make a mistake, it's gone and it's, it's gone forever. And so you have to be more responsible. In fact, to your def, to, to what you said about masculinity, Pastor Doug Wilson, um, who's one of the best thinkers and speakers about masculinity today, he says masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility, mm-hmm. right? He, mm-hmm. he defines beautiful. it exactly that way. It's beautiful. And so, and so it's, it's perfect that you understand that as a man, you now bear, what is it? Yeah, like Jer, you know, by the way, pour some out, some out for Jer. He got, he got banned from Twitter for a week today. Oh, really? So oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Laser, and, Laser and Jer both got banned for a week. So okay. pour, pour some out for the homies. <laughs> right, it's ridiculous. So, um, so to bear responsibility for all things. So there's something very fundamental about that. But, when, but even in a fiat world, like, yes, okay, there are still consequences for making bad decisions financially for the average man, right? But even in a fiat world, your inflation, inflation takes away the value of your money anyway. So you're going to experience negative consequences no matter what you do. You can make totally. the best decisions ever with fiat money and you will still suffer from the consequences of someone else's decisions. Others, right? Others. Exactly. That's right. That's right. So it's like it puts it all back on you. It, it deranges everything, basically, because as, as I said, it, it actually changes the calculus. And, and, I'm, and I'm just about to finish writing another article for the Bitcoin Time publication that I do. And mm-hmm. this one talks about how Bitcoin makes... It, it takes Austrian economics from the realm of theory and it puts mm-hmm. it in the place of, uh, in the realm of practice, right? Yes. Because yes. Austrian economics has always been a, a theory or an ideology or a, or a study of, you know, individual responsibility, uh, you know, political and economic restraint, mm-hmm. which don't exist today anymore. Um, it, it, it talks about like allowing, allowing the freedom for people to act, but also, uh, giving them the responsibility for the consequences of their decisions. So, so Austrian economics has basically been this kind of sound uh, set of principles and it's been completely disregarded mm-hmm. because for the last 150 years, when the, the temptation to eat the forbidden fruit, you know, to, to push the, the button that, you know, makes you basically readjust the, the, the game mm-hmm. Money to your over. benefit. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just been too damn strong. So, so there hasn't been any like quote unquote alpha by playing, by being responsible or, you know, maintaining some restraints. So what happens is the, you know, the, the quote unquote, the most intelligent and maybe, you know, morally flexible of us have, what have they done? They've run yeah. to wall street. They've run to Silicon Valley. They've built, you know, basically dick pick apps and gambling apps. Um, mm-hmm. And basically the whole world has kind of, skewed in a weird direction because incentives matter like and, and this mm-hmm. is the thing it's like if, if you incentivize all of that crap then why would someone sit there and continue doing the right thing and just get whipped and whipped and whipped and whipped yep. it, it kind yep. of erodes people over time and you know to a large degree you can you can see why there's so much um i guess yeah, there's, corruption. there's nihilism, there's corruption, there's like all of these sort of downstream psychological manifestations of basically a, a rigged game. No mm-hmm. one's played a rigged game. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if without without religion, without religion at the core of your society, you know, if, if people aren't making that that moral eternal calculation, then the clear incentive in terms of game theory is what we know what that is. It's to compete. It's to compete when someone else cooperates, right? Mm-hmm. So take advantage. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's mm-hmm. that's what it proves. Like maybe not long term, but. Yeah, men, people who are morally flexible, who don't have a conscience, because whether or not we have religion in society, men still have a conscience, with the exception of the psychopaths out there, which is totally, it's a thing, yeah. which is worthy of talking mm-hmm. about, probably. But people like, why should I? Why should I play the game fairly? Why should I play the game righteously when clearly the people who cheat win the game? So I'll mm-hmm. go, I'll go and and I'll go and do that, and that's and mm-hmm. voila, now here we are. Unless a man feels a moral call within himself to behave righteously, if only so he can sleep at night. Right, which well, yeah, and, that's a and, thing, and it is, it is. But the thing is, it gets really tricky because you know. And I think Jordan Peterson said this really well in one of his interviews. He said the way you know, the, like I think he used the Nazi prison camps, the guards as a, as an example. It's like sure. they didn't go from being a soldier to a you know a prison guard overnight. It's like someone close to them, you know, got them just to like transgress their morality a little bit, mm-hmm. and you know they felt guilty about it, but. You know, once you've transgressed just a little bit, you know, it, you, you can't sleep at night and all of this, but then to try and rationalize, to, tr- to prove to yourself that you're a good person, um, you'll kind of forget about it. You'll, you'll bury it. And then yes. you'll be asked to transgress just a little bit more again. And, you yes. know, you, you won't feel right about it, but, you know, you've already done it once. It's like, okay, it can't hurt. Just one more time. Just one more time and well, I won't do it again. Last time. Last That's time. It. You do it a little bit more, a little bit more. And then after you do that 10, 15, 20 times, you're somewhere, you're, you're all the way out here. And you started out at here and you're like, how did that happen? Well, it happened inch by inch. Yeah. Um, it didn't happen in one shot. And this, this is exactly what happens to people is like corruption and moral decay is a process of decay. It's not a process of abrupt transformation. Um, it, it happens over time. And, you know, to, to a large degree, you know, trying to be a moral person um, and being surrounded by just basically the, the status quo of immorality, of high time preference, of poor behaviors and everything, it, it kind of eats away at you. And, you know, not everyone is, you know, I mean, technically nobody is Jesus Christ, right? Like he <laughs> may have been was. able to resist that one guy, right? Yeah. And, you know, the, the rest of us, like, you know, we, we, we're going to make mistakes and we're going to be dragged down certain roads. So it really takes a level of character, a level of, you know, chutzpah, a level of whatever phraseology we want to give it to kind of resist that. And this is where stuff like, you know, what you're doing, what Jer is doing, like what, you know, other people in the, in the sort of masculine space are doing, like building a commonwealth of men, like is really powerful because that's sort of what, what you need to resist the, the siren call of the, the maniacs. Mm-hmm. And, and haven't we learned that the past two years? Right. Like Mm -hmm. what was what was COVID? I mean, COVID was many things, but what was it besides the siren call of just capitulate just a little bit? Wear Mm -hmm. the mask. You know, Mm -hmm. we're just Mm -hmm. just just wear it into this shop. Oh, just take just take one. Don't worry. Don't Mm -hmm. worry. It's just a regular, it's just a regular jab. Just take Mm -hmm. oh, it's gonna take one. Oh no, sorry, it's gonna take two. No, it's gonna take three, and then Mm vaccine and then and then more masking. And it's just like men and women have capitulated inch by inch along that path. And then look the other way on this election thing. Like we're going to lie, cheat and steal and you just do your thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And to Mm -hmm. the point where people are so morally compromised in their own consciences over what they absolutely must know in their heart is wrong, that -hmm. they can no longer tell wrong from right, except for what they're told by the TV. And people's consciences now are are completely 
are completely numb such that I was having a, I was having a conversation with someone recently and we were talking about politics and stuff like that. And I was like, do you know that Hunter Biden is a, a crack addicted whoremonger? Like, do you think, yes, I do know that. Do you think that that's relevant to the character of the president? No, I don't think it's relevant at all. Yes, someone sent me right? that as well. That's, ins- like- that's insane. Like, 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 come on, like any father would be judged by the character of a son. And if he were, and if he were only, if he were only addicted to crack and posting and recording every minute of his, of his hedonistic lifestyle, that'd be one thing, but he's involved with his father's business dealings in Ukraine. This is not negotiable. Mm -hmm. And not only is this coming out now, this was out before the election and that was framed as Russian disinformation. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And now it was validated in all these disgusting ways. And the thing is you point to something that is so objectively clear and true and immoral and illegal and disgusting morally like that. And people are so like, yeah, no, I don't think that matters. And it's like, Oh, Oh dear. (laughs) Oh dear. Is my response. This is, yeah, it's when, when, when everything matters, nothing matters. And that's what's kind Mm. of happened over the last two years. Like everything mattered. Like, Oh, you can't go out. You can't breathe on someone. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like everything matters. So it's like mass hysteria. And it's, it's funny before this whole, you know, the, the Hunter Biden stuff actually came out and, you know, we saw it basically, someone was asking me, they're like, you know, what do you think they're prepping for? And I was like, you know what? I don't think anything that comes out at the moment is going to do anything because people are so, um, you know, over, like over hystericized to the point that they mm. could be zombies walking across the street. People are like, oh, it's Monday. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I think, and that, that's a, that's a dangerous place to be because that's kind of the, the boy who cried wolf. Right. It's like right. when something bad actually does happen, whatever, like, yeah, we just, you know, and, and this is kind of, I don't know. We, we seem to, this is, you know, apathy, nihilism, uh, 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 kind of deliberate ignorance because, you know, the, mm-hmm. as you said, the, the person who was saying that to you, same thing, like somebody, I tweeted, I was, something about that and then someone was oh it, or maybe it was the other way around actually yeah that idiot eric Voorhees, who's the the shit coiner oh he, yeah my favorite he, yeah he tweeted he's like uh all these people um trying to point the finger at biden because of um you know his son uh missing the point and i'm like what the fuck is wrong with you like i, I just couldn't handle it i'm like what point are they missing i'm like right. if that's how my child behave like that that is an impression on me now understand like me me and trav are you familiar with trav yeah um, Meta- Meta- trav yeah, stewart yeah. formerly Meta- yeah, trav trav. yeah he's yeah, great yeah, yeah, yeah. His, he's uh, was it? yeah so he, he and i have spoken a lot about like nature versus nurture and, and i do think mm. there is like nature is extraordinarily powerful and in fact it may be more important than uh than nurture in many ways because like i think it's kind of the, the core of the being, and then you can mold it in, in particular ways. And that's where, you know, the father's presence really is important because the father can you know, introduce restraint and, and help mold someone with a weird nature um, in, in better ways. But I mean, hmm. it, it's not that like, it, it doesn't negate um, the responsibility of the individual and, and, you know, how they behave and then what, the father's presence was particularly on the son. I mean, mm-hmm. the father must have a presence on, on both, but like the, the son in, in many ways emulates the father. And, and I don't know, man, like, wow. Yeah. I, I just think people trying to brush that off as not important. 
like they know it's important and they're deliberately being ignorant and what else are they deliberately ignorant about you know mm-hmm. everything yes. else in their life everything well everything of consequence like someone yeah. can be someone can be very responsible in their life they can live skillfully they can be successful in their career they can even they can even be you know, an interpersonal interaction is good and decent and honest. And, and, and this is the big contradiction, right? But then someone who fails to be able to acknowledge the significance that the son of the president of the United States flies around the world doing these just horrible things, like horrible, disgusting things, like how is that not relevant? And someone who can't recognize how relevant that is, there's a degree of moral compromise there. And that's mm-hmm. the problem is that, you know, this is so widespread that people are morally compromised that it's it's quite a, it's kind of shocking and a little frightening because I've recently you know been kind of accepting that well maybe everything is kind of in free fall maybe this is just what's happening and I need to I need to brace for impact more than more that I have and I want to drive us back onto the bitcoin road because you know a big mm-hmm. a big part of that is is well if if everything in our lives is going to be taken from us right that we've gotten used to over the past say 50 or so years this Comfort of comfort and, and and prosperity of modernity it's all going to be snatched away in some great great resort reset. Sorry, how do we begin building sovereignty as men? Because that is our first responsibility, right? To go from dependence, which we've all been, you know, um, uh, cultivated to be. We've all been, you know, I was, you were, probably everyone listening has been cultivated to be dependent to a certain degree. We're exploring independence and we're thinking about interdependence. How do we truly establish independence in thought? in mind and heart and body and in finance. And Bitcoin gives the possibility for first true independence and inter- interdependence financially to help protect from this free fall situation that we might be in with people with compromised um, moral, moral compasses. Oops, I muted myself. Yeah, so yeah. To- totally. I think I've said in the past that savings is the cornerstone of civilization. Uh, in, in the same way that we pass down the written word, we mm. pass the, the stored product of our labor, basically, you know, the, the, our stored value in the form of money, uh, this language of value. We pass it on in, in the same way we do teachings, morality, mm-hmm. ideas, all mm. this stuff. Now, imagine what kind of a civilization we'd have if every time the elders died, like if we never had writing and if we never had to the, the ability to pass anything on, like the memory died with each generation, we'd never progress. You yeah. can't like we, we just we just be learning the same thing. We wouldn't even have the fucking wheel today. Right. Mm-hmm. So so. Civilization itself builds upon the savings of the prior generation, the prior generation, the prior generation. So, so we must be able to do that. And for me. At a, at a macro scale, that, that's sort of the function and the role savings plays. It, it helps um, helps us build a top of something, so so we, we can continue constructing. Yes, um, you know, because once again, like we as human beings, we're, we're builders, we're engineers, we're creators. That that's what we do. We we progress uh, civilization and our species forward. Then at the micro scale, as individuals, in order to move beyond uh kind of like base animal instincts and like the need for survival today we must be able to store the excess product of our labor 
in a form so that we can access it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, we actually lower our time preference. So, so time mm-hmm. preference for, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the term, but for people listening, Thank time you. preference is the, uh, the relative value you place on the future versus today. Now, the future is always, because it comes with a, a degree of uncertainty, the future is always valued less than today. So you always have um, what is it? you always have a negative time preference, which is you know you 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 will always value the future less than today. Now the thing is, if you if you have a high time preference, so if your um if your numerator, which is uh, the present over the future, mm-hmm. is extremely high, meaning that you value today but you have zero value for tomorrow, mm-hmm. you're basically an animal. You, you're just looking to quickly eat. Fuck, sleep. That's it. Mm-hmm. That, that's all you care about. Um, but as you lower the time preference, as you start to value the future more and get close to that, you know, the equation, if like the future was valued at the same amount as the present, it would be one. That's like mm-hmm. the lowest time preference possible. But as you start to lower that, what happens is you can start to think about tomorrow. You can start to think about uh, maybe I need to build a tool or maybe I need to provide for more than just me. Maybe I need to think about a family. Maybe I need to think about a woman, children. Maybe I need to think about my community. And as you expand your time preference, as you lengthen your time horizon, um, you're able to become, you, you basically climb the hierarchy of responsibility. You become responsible for more. You take on more. You, you bear the burden uh, of responsibility. You bear, you bear the responsibility of all things. In order to do that, a mechanism for savings must exist. Mm-hmm. You can't do it if your wealth is obliterated every week. And that's why you see in civilizations where you have bad money, you don't have any savings and you don't have civilization and you have a bunch of people running around rampant, shooting, killing and stabbing each other, trying to claim power for now, trying to eat, trying to do whatever they can. Civilization can only function when you have a functional money. And that is hands down, if you want to plot the rise and fall or the progress of anything throughout civilization, it is all linked to money. And this for me, like Bitcoin for the first time, gives us sound money that we are individually responsible for, that we can uh, interact with. So we can be interdependent with Bitcoin because it, my Bitcoin talks to your Bitcoin, mm-hmm. my wallet talks to your wallet. Um, but we were able to do this outside of the permission of a group or an institution or bank, government, whatever, whatever group we want to give it. Like it, it's we're able to do this through the magic of mathematics, mm-hmm. um, and that fundamentally has never existed before. And for me, that is like a a step change in the quality of civilization. Mm -hmm. Um, The the kind of step change as a metaphor that people could think of is like, I I think of money as I've said many things like language of value, et cetera, but it really is like, it's how you evaluate things like are you evaluating the future you're evaluating things and stuff and opportunities and everything it's like a you know we all keep a kind of like a running tally 
of the value of things in the back of our mind. And, and money just helps us abstract that away in a way that we can value more stuff and make better decisions and basically orient. Now, with crap money, we're all sinfully orienting ourselves. We are off the mark. We are all sinning. We're all making yeah. poor value judgment, poor valuations. And the downstream complex effect of that is complete pandemonium where nobody knows what the fuck they're doing, why they're mm. doing it, when they're doing it. It's like complete mindlessness. So to come back to that metaphor that I was about to say is today's civilization is like a blind man building a house with an elastic tape measure. So mm. the, mon like, the money is the measure. Like we're using an elastic one because it just changes all the fucking time. Mm -hmm. um, and we're blind because we can't orient ourselves. We have no savings. We're just like grabbing shit and we're trying. The, quant the quality of a civilization on a Bitcoin standard is like a sighted mm. individual building a house with a fixed tape measure. Mm -hmm. Like think about the difference in the quality of those two structures. That's the difference in the level of uh, quality of civilization we'll have post-Bitcoin and pre-Bitcoin. So anyway, I've gone off on a huge tangent there, but nope. I guess to your to your initial uh, question slash comment around like, you know, Bitcoin being uh, one of the pillars, I, I would, I'd, I'd just have to argue that it is the most important pillar because against the specter of Bitcoin's reality, human beings are not forced by coercion to become better. They are forced in the same way as gravity uh, compels them not to jump off a cliff. Yes. It's not that gravity is evil. It's just, it's there. So you don't jump off the fucking cliff. It's so, so you actually orient yourself against the reality of Bitcoin. And, and that for me is, is fundamentally important. And then the question then comes, how do we behave as individuals? How do we show up? Who are we? Um, you know, masculine, feminine polarity and dynamics, like all these other things start to come, you know, food, energy, et cetera, start to come downstream from that. But if we sort of fix that kernel in the beginning, your orientation about all the other stuff starts to matter. You can no longer mm -hmm. lie to yourself without having a consequence um, that, that sort of, you know, echoes right back at you. And, and to me that, yeah, it's just, once again, profoundly important and i think we we fix a in the short term we create a lot of problems because the world's not ready for responsibility but in the long mm. term after iterations of responsible people coming up and leading uh i think we we have a we have a much more functional world two three hundred years from now after a few generations have washed through mm -hmm. and learned what it means to be a responsible man and a responsible leader um, versus a fucking Hunter Biden coke junkie. <laughs> yes, yes, this is a fantastic, fantastic. Because I mean, just to just to break a bunch of things down, you know, the 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 function what our money does determines how we behave, right? So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if 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 when we take if we earn say a hundred dollars and we put it in a savings account, and inflation means that it's you know it's worth so much less in a short period of time, our incentive is to take that hundred dollars. And maximize its value by spending it, you know, right. So right away, just spend it, get it, spend it, get it, spend it, get it, spend it. That disincentivizes us to save. And without savings, without generational wealth, uh, children get trapped in this essentially the same the same economic strata, the same class over multiple generations. Like generational wealth is built up as generational wealth as savings. But if you're if you're disincentivized to save, 
as a father, you'll teach your son. You won't teach your son to save, right? And so he'll end up in the same class probably versus if you as a father save and you hand, a, you hand down morality and a nest egg to your son, he can do amazing things with that and begin and begin building, right? But with inflationary money, the incentive now for the father, inflationary fiat, the incentive for the father isn't to save or for anybody to save, just spend it, right? Versus Bitcoin. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, it's, to, it's to spend, I was just going to say, it's to spend or to what they call today investing, which is really gambling. Sure. Like it's, it's nobody's business to go out there, like an entire system, an entire fucking set of industries have emerged mm-hmm. around like uh, financial planning and fucking IRAs and 401ks and ETFs and all this shit yeah. that nobody needs. Like this dawned on me for the first time about three, four years ago. Like, so, so my mom, she's a, she's a great woman. She's, she's a working class, like been working her ass off all her life. And I remember going to a cafe with her about three or four years ago. And this was one of the first times the, the, like the real visceral importance of Bitcoin dawned on me. She's like, I saved up all this money. And she goes, I don't know what to do with it. She goes, I'm putting it in the bank. They're not giving me anything anymore. She goes, uh, last time I gave your brother money, like, and my brother's one of these degenerate fucking gamblers thinking he's mm-hmm. like, I call him a degenerate gambler, but in the sense of like, he spends his life staring at a fucking screen, reading charts, thinking that he's going to make money. Like right. the most unproductive behavior a human being can do, just sit there, basically jerk off on watching porn and watch charts so that you can make a quick buck trading. Right. Like that's literally what we've got a whole millions of people doing that now. And, and, you, and what and are they used to do? Too. I work from home. I used to do it too. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I used to do that shit too. So I speak from experience. It's like, you know, we, we, we go and we, we've deformed everybody and she's sitting there saying like, I don't know what to do with my money. And like for 99.9% of people, investing is a complete fucking scam yeah. and spending all of your money on consumables is complete stupidity. So what are people living in? They're living in complete sin because they're scammed or they're stupid. And all they had to do was save, but they can't. They're penalized for doing the moral thing. Yes. And that, like, to, to, to quickly tie that back to time preference is if you have some savings, you can actually stop for a minute. And one of the most important things for a man to do is to take stock, stop, slow down, and make a rational decision, stop acting emotionally, stop racing and running and being on a fucking rat race on a, you know, on a, whatever that wheel is called that the rats are on hamster wheel. That's it. Um, like doing that is like living in, in a constant state of angst, fear, and anxiety, which is, you know, that's the feminine realm. That's where all these men are. They, they can't stop for a moment and say, okay, I've, I've worked, I've built up some wealth. Here it is. And now I can raise my gaze and I can think about what I want to do down the track. Mm-hmm. I can lower my time preference and I can actually behave like a responsible adult, not like some, teenager with fucking allowance that's going to run out and I don't know what to do tomorrow. Like that's how everyone is behaving. And this is where, once again, savings is so important for time preference. Time preference is inherently inherently linked to morality. The more moral you are, the lower your time preference. Those two mm-hmm. things are inextricably linked. And we've, de- we've destroyed time preference completely. And everyone is behaving like children or animals who have zero, uh, respect for the future like they have complete 
know, they're basically, you know, their time preference is trending towards infinity because <laughs> mm-hmm. their value for the future is zero. And, mm-hmm. and that's a disaster. So anyway, sorry to interject there, but no, that's okay. I think that's a important soundbite. No, I mean, I agree. And, and what I love about conversations about Bitcoin is that it, it literally, it's, it's not like a road, it's a web. You know, you just follow mm-hmm, your own mm-hmm, unique mm-hmm. path through the conversation because it touches on so many different philosophical topics because it gets straight to the heart of morality. Like, just mm-hmm. like Laser talks about, you know, monetary reset and how Bitcoin is a weapon against monetary reset, right? These reflections that, you're, that you've had on morality and behavior and masculinity are just as an important a set of topics because our money guides our behavior. Our money is our expression of, of choice. Our money is an expression of, of almost okay. freedom in a way. And if what we do with our money is constrained by the nature of the money itself, right, in a negative way, you know, in the way that, that fiat constrains, it forces us in the direction of, um, of high time preference, of short-term thinking, because we can't actually save it, or we're trying to magnify it through gambling. If it forces our decisions, because it's not a morally neutral technology, fiat currency is not a morally neutral technology. It guides us now, at least how it's being used now. It guides mm-hmm. us through these sets of decisions. So if we can replace that technology, that more that morally, um, we won't even say corrupt technology, fiat currency, with a morally righteous technology of Bitcoin, we will naturally guide our decisions towards more righteous directions. And that's how fundamental this gets. And it seems odd to think that something like Bitcoin or digital money or whatever you want to call it would guide men's decisions in terms of morality, but it does very powerfully. And that's why I think Christianity and masculinity and Bitcoin are such deeply intertwined and interconnected subjects because they all guide us towards a a more low time preference, high morality, savings oriented way of being, which begins with responsibility and consequence for our decisions, bearing personal responsibility for our decisions rather than outsourcing the consequences of our decisions. All these things are fundamentally linked and so important for men to get. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself, man. Like that was really well summed up. And I think this, this little subset of the ecosystem, that kind of that blend of like Christian morality, you know, theology slash um, masculinity slash Bitcoin, like that kind of Venn diagram is my favorite, man. Like it's just, it's the rabbit hole that I'm like going down right now because it's just, it's so much fun because, like, you know, once you do the once you do the economics piece and you got that locked away, then it's kind of like, what else? And this this is such a such a powerful area because it's been it's been under attack for so long. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I think Bitcoin like will just take care of the economics part easiest. I think that's also one of the lower hanging fruits for Bitcoin to solve. It's like, okay, can't print the money. Well, bad luck. Fuck you. Keynesianism is no longer the alpha. <laughs> now mm-hmm. you like literally can't do anything and. It it actually makes me think of um, I don't know how familiar you are with like the the medieval Japanese sort of era with like the samurais and this concept of a bushido. Have you ever yeah, the, the bushido code of the samurai, like the the, yeah. the warrior code of the samurai? Yeah, but if if some of the listeners aren't, go for it. Like fill us in because I may not know what yeah. you know. So the for for those who don't know what the word bushido means, it it actually means um it actually means way of the man. Um, mm. or way of the warrior uh, in, in Japanese. So what it was, it's kind of like, I guess the 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 West had its equivalent in chivalry in, in a sense, but the Bushido mm-hmm. was kind of a little bit more well-formed in a mm-hmm. sense. And it, it kind of emerged off the back of uh, when, when the warring period uh, between the the, uh, the daimyos in, um, and, and basically the daimyos were kind of like the, the I wouldn't call them, 
kings that they, they were kind of like more like hmm, dukes probably of of the lands and they kind of warred and then there was one shogunate who kind of united all of japan and post that there was a, a relative period of peace and you know you had all these samurais who were warriors before and the the question asked themselves is like okay we, we're a higher class of being like we were the warrior class kind of like the knights in um mm-hmm. in, in western christendom how must we behave? And it's funny how the similar sort of thing emerged in the West as in, in, in Japan. There was this kind of moral code and it was, you know, the way of the warrior, the way of the man. And to be a samurai wasn't just to be born a samurai and to know how to wield a sword, but it was how to behave mm-hmm. as, a, as a man, as a leader, as, as someone from the samurai class. And to me, I, I just found this really interesting as I was looking at it because you look at the, the, the code there's no word love there, which is really interesting. Even the, the Japanese language is uh, the, the closest word they have to love is actually Judy, which is really interesting. Um, oh, wow. Hmm. So, um, but you, you look at the, mm-hmm. the, the virtues and I'm going to kind of rattle them off because I don't remember them exactly, but um, it's courage, bravery, uh, honesty, uh, integrity, uh, compassion, responsibility, um, duty, honor, like this whole set of values, which it, it was never like a written code. It was always like an unspoken code, yeah. but it was how one must behave. And this was the class of man. Like th- there was no samurai women. Um, you know, th- there was, I guess, let me rephrase that. There was samurai women in the sense that they were married to a samurai, Yeah, but you know, they, they were the wife of the samurai, but they were not the samurai themselves. They wouldn't go out and fight because the men carried that burden. That was their responsibility. This responsibility of the of the wife was to take care of the household. Mm-hmm. And that they had these very strong um, delineation between the roles. And, and it was a very functional, stable, strong society. Mm-hmm. It all got fucked up when the, you know, the the post uh, revolutionary fucking Europeans went there and destroyed the whole thing. But that's another story. Yeah. Um, but this idea of a Bushido, so I'm, I'm writing an article, which I really want to turn into a book next year. It's, it's called The Bushido of Bitcoin. And the mm. premise of the book is how must we as Bitcoiners, because we are going to inherit the world, like as cocky as that sounds uh, and as maybe arrogant as that sounds to people, yeah. like those of us who, you know, who get it, who will acquire the Bitcoin, who will lock it up, who will secure it, who will be responsible, who will endure through the clown world segment of civilization that we're in. We're going to come out the other end disproportionately wealthy um, compared to the rest of the world. So if we are going to have that with great power comes great responsibility, how must we then behave? And and I think this sort of moral code needs to start to be thought of. So, So I really want to write this book as a, kind of like a guidebook for people. And, and basically, I mean, all I'm going to be doing is rehashing, you know, Christian principles and, you know, principles of the Bushido, but I want to kind of like write it for, you know, for, for our times and, and have people think about, you know, once you've sort of solved the money piece, what comes next? Because we are the new stewards of the world. And the last mm-hmm. thing we want to do is do what, you know, the, the stewards of 250 years ago did, which was, tear down the fucking patriarchy and destroy everything um, mm-hmm. and yeah. bring us to where we are today where 
everything is fucking back to front. So, so we, we don't want a repeat of that. We want to, you know, Bitcoin will be always be an economic check, but we need to, you know, kind of institute, you know, a moral and social check on a lot of this stuff. And, and basically it's going to be predicated on, you know, don't tread on me, stay the fuck out of my way, be responsible for yourself. Um, you know, and we are interdependent and like, yeah, the, 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 there's stuff there and I'm by no means going to be the authority on all of it. But I hope that I'll be able to spark some thinking off the back of this kind of writing so that people can go away and think about, like, how do I want to behave and what do I want to, what, what kind of moral code do I want to pass on to my kids? Because in many ways, whilst we'll probably be wealthy, we'll be in our later years by the time all of this happens. So we'll have had to pass the world on to our children and our children's children. How are they going to behave? Do, do we want little, you know, entitled fucking brats to be running around? Um, you know, with more money than they know what to do with, or right. do we want stewards to to pass the world onto? Um, so yeah, I think that's um to your original point. It's like, what are the other things that we need to think about in this period? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to go back to something we said earlier, you know, Bitcoin is not a a magic bullet. The bit's not a magic solution to a man's life. And so I, I want to make sure in checking our language that it's the, 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 the impression isn't communicated that all you got to do is, is, uh, is get some Bitcoin and you're fine. Like, no, obviously not. But what we said earlier is that Bitcoin is an attractor and an accelerant, right? An attractor isn't the road itself, right? It attracts you towards it and then it accelerates the journey that you're already on. So we make sure that it's not like Bitcoin is this magic bullet to, to heal every wrong in a man's life. Bitcoin obviously you know, it needs to go along with masculinity, with Christianity and Christian values, which I think are are woven into the fabric of the universe. Like, I don't think it's rehashing. Right. So I don't think it's rehashing anything to say like, oh, by the way, this is how reality is. Because for some men, some men don't agree with that. And, you know, sorry, (laughs) but, uh, you know, so you're not rehashing this idea that someone came up with. You're like, you're making hard observations about the nature of reality that people constantly need to be reminded of, right? Because we're not, we haven't passed down we haven't passed down sound financial thinking. We haven't passed down sound moral thinking. It wasn't passed down to us. You know, mm-hmm, we're mm-hmm. we're rediscovering these things. Like what I think what makes Bitcoin powerful, what makes Christianity powerful, what makes masculinity powerful. I want to back up on that for a second. Okay. Because Christianity and masculinity, these ideas um, were already in the in the world. Like masculinity got lost in rediscovering it. Christianity mm-hmm. is having sort of a revival over rediscovering it. I don't, I have to, maybe we can go down this rabbit hole a little bit. I think the things that Bitcoin makes possible, I don't know that they were ever like actually out there in society. So Bitcoin might not be a rediscovery, but a discovery for the first time, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we can kick that around, but just to close the thought, masculinity, Christianity, or va- we might say values, warrior values, Bushido values, all these things are out there and they all need to fit together to produce the kind of man who will inherit the world. And I did want to highlight that word inherit. Um, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth, right? Is the is the is the saying? The word meek means strength, like a, a sword sheathed, right? Like yes. that, they will inherit the earth. But the important thing is the word inherit, because when do you inherit something? You inherit something when someone dies, mm-hmm. right? So we hear this phrase over and over again. It's like inherit doesn't mean here you can have this. It means something else dies so that something else can be can be. So I believe I agree with you that we will inherit the world. But the process of inheritance, you know, that's uh, that's not always a fun and exciting process, right? That's a let's pull on that thread because th- this is one where you know I kind of 
when I jump into Twitter spaces or stuff like that, people are like, you know, oh, you know, what do you think? And, and, and a lot of kind of what you said in the beginning is people get caught up. They, it's funny the, the, the journey people go on when they find Bitcoin because it, it genuinely fills them with hope and optimism. But then yeah. some of them, you know, naturally go off the deep end with hope and optimism and they think that, you know, just, yep, I don't need to work on myself and, you know, everything else is uh, fine. Just buy some Bitcoin yeah. and then everything's fine. And, and I think that is, yeah, um, no. that is so wrong. No, I don't think that happens too much because, like, you know, you, I, I think those who really, like, when Bitcoin dawns on them, you know, you have, you know, these 10 thousand branches that kind of come off and you know you've got people wanting to fill in their freezers up with fucking you know meat and going out learning to shoot and hunt and all, all this kind of crap you know kind of comes off the back of that right you're talking about me bro yeah <laughs> exactly. freezer right yeah. over there yeah um so it's you know I, I kind of try and sober people up a little bit when they ask me it's like you know what, what do you think and i think of this idea of kind of like before Bitcoin and after Bitcoin, and they're going to be two different uh, worlds and mm-hmm. the quality of each world is going to be very different. But as you said, there's going to be a transition and that process of inheritance is going to be ugly. And I kind of think of that as a, there's this idea of, um, well, there's this word called interregnum, which mm-hmm. is, which basically means the time between one king and another, right? Or the time mm-hmm. between one ruler and another. And the interregnum or the period of transition, whatever we want to call it, is going to be messy. And in fact, I think it's going to be the ugliest part of all of it because we, we have this period right now. And, and I mean, we're kind of in the interregnum, actually. We're kind of 12 yeah. years in because you know, the, the, the Bitcoin point was in 2008. But it's going to, a couple of things are going to happen. Number one is that the the clown world will continue to accelerate because what do clowns do when the car is losing control they make it lose more control mm-hmm. um, so so that they'll keep doubling down on stupid policies on uh, bad monetary decisions on mm-hmm. more clamp downs more reasons to lock down like europe is locking down now because it's 36 degrees um you know which Ugh. is i think in fahrenheit it's like 98 right <laughs> like a walk in the park here in texas bro um, right so like so, so 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 like civilization will get softer and you know the 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 idiots uh driving the train are gonna just like keep pushing every button that they can push uh whether through malice or i i think a large part of it is just what you would call the useful idiots the ones who genuinely think we've got a climate crisis or whatever else they've got on their list of boxes to tick the current um, thing so it's a yeah, the current thing. So they were just pushing every single button to try and fix everything and in the process break everything. And you're going to have that kind of accelerating. That's going to cause uh, prices to increase across the board. People are going to start panicking about, you know, fuel and food. Like fuel and food are like really, really, really important because they're yeah, the two things points. that, yeah, like everything kind of revolves around that. So you'll have that happening um, simultaneously. You know, what you'll have is uh, this kind of period where in the pandemonium, like opportunist will come out and Mm -hmm. you'll have kind of otherwise intelligent hackers and all this sort of stuff. They'll be stealing people's Bitcoin. They'll be phishing scams. They'll be every scam under the sun Mm -hmm. during this interregnum of people who, if they're not 
really wised up if they haven't really taken personal responsibility for the Bitcoin um, or whatever. Like, you know, we've just seen it in one element with the whole Celsius and BlockFi thing. Like Bitcoiners have been shouting from the rooftops for years, not your keys, not your coins, get your shit off BlockFi, get your shit off Celsius. And everyone's like, oh, bro, you're just a fucking, you know, naysayer. You know, you just, you know, so you sit in there holding your Bitcoin in your own wallet and you're not earning anything here. I'm earning 6% interest. And now fucking here we are a year and a half later, you got nothing, bro. So like, you know, we, we've, we've been sort of yelling all this stuff, but, you know, no one's obviously listening because the, the way of the world, it's like, you know, hand my responsibility to someone else and I just get free shit for no reason. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so all, all of this stuff's going to happen. And what you're going to see is, as I said, there'll be hacks, there'll be theft, there'll be all sorts of stuff in the interregnum because there's going to be chaos. Like the, the, the very paradigm is shifting. The very primitives of the old civilization versus new civilization are going to shift. Um, and particularly because we've deviated so far away, like if we were, if we had discovered Bitcoin in, you know, 1750, <laughs> as an example, maybe the shift wouldn't have been so uh, catastrophic as it would be now. But we've, you know, the Overton window has shifted so far towards egalitarianism, towards feminism, towards democracy, towards all of these ideas. Yeah, communism, leftism, we're all in this together, stupidity. Um, That swinging the pendulum back to responsibility is going to go through a whole host of like, opportunities for um i guess the less scrupulous out there the opportunists mm. out there to to take advantage and unfortunately keeps people are going to get taken advantage of and then what that's going to do is it's going to make them bitter um and i i one thing i i'm concerned about and this is for me like what what i'm thinking long term about what i want to do with family and things like that is i want to be out of the way of you know, the biggest mistake I think I've made in my entire Bitcoin career is making myself a real public figure around Bitcoin because mm. the vitriol is going to get pointed at or pointed toward Bitcoiners. Um, it's our fault the um, inflation went up. It's our fault the um, I lost my money. But that's what's going to happen, oh, right? Okay. And yeah, it, of course, of course. So, so the kind of like what happened when, um, I mean, you know, the Weimar Republic in the late stages of it, as it was hyperinflating, who was to blame? The speculators. Right. The speculators were just in the right place at the right time. Yeah, yeah. You know, they were trading this and that. Who else was to blame other than the speculators? The people who hoarded gold and hoarded, um, you know, uh, food and foodstuffs and things like that. And a lot of those people were, lo and behold, were Jewish. So, you know, the the, the hatred didn't actually start with the Jews specifically. It started off with the people who were hoarding. Um, it just happened to be a large proportion of them were Jewish. So then it's like, okay, let's move on to this angle. And then step by step by step, we ended up with, um, you know, that atrocity. So we, you know, we as Bitcoiners are kind of in a precarious situation because we, one, want to kind of slap some sense into everybody, but we paint a target on on our backs in doing so. Mm-hmm. And depending on how messy things get over the next decade, because I think this decade is really going to be the crux of the interregnum. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I don't know how much blame ends up falling at our feet. Like, um, you know, they'll, they'll throw everything at Bitcoin. They'll, they'll say, oh, the oceans are boiling over and, you know, it's the Bitcoin miners. Um, we have inflation and that's because of Bitcoin. Like uh, we have 
food prices are high, that's because we don't have the energy and that's because of Bitcoin. Like mm-hmm. they'll, they'll try and blame everything at it. And that's going to be, that's going to be a tricky thing to navigate. And this is why like a lot of the, the content that we need to build, like, I think we are doing the right thing by getting ahead of all of this stuff and really mm-hmm. talking about the morality around Bitcoin and all of that sort of stuff. The more we can kind of spread that message, this is where things like, you know, responsibility go up technology morality go up technology like all these sort of ideas are really important because if we can kind of embed that in kind of the the consciousness of people it'll it'll make it just a much harder uh thing to attack if we've got a bit of the moral high ground so anyway that that's kind of i, I wanted to pull on that thread around like it's going to be ugly during the interregnum and i think people should not kid themselves that it's going to be all sunshine and roses because the paradigm is just too different. Like if, if yeah. there was a little bit more proximity between now and the future, you know, one could argue that it's going to be a transition. It'll be a technological disruption, which never killed anybody. It just put a few people out of business. Mm. This is a social, civilizational, yep. political, economic, all of these revolutions kind of all bundled into one. It's a powder fucking keg. Um, So we need to think more deeply about what we do to navigate that. Men, look at the world today. You know something isn't right. You know many things aren't right. And if you're smart, you also know that you have something to do with it. What's wrong isn't your fault, but I bet you know you could do something to change it. In fact, I bet there's something you could do right now not just a task undone, though there are plenty of those. I mean a journey untaken, a land undiscovered, a shield gathering dust, a sword rusting, a map rolled up somewhere inside you, and a call unheeded. If this describes you, I understand. It once described me. I was 50 pounds overweight, stuck in a dead-end relationship, surrounded by men afraid of their women, and waiting for my hopes to come to me. I would have waited forever, except for one thing. I wanted to live, not simply be alive. I wasn't content to float down the river of life with everyone around me. I wanted to paddle towards the shore and follow my path towards adventure and along the way make a difference in this beautiful and broken world. So one day, that's what I did. And I started in the company of men. I'm beginning a new online men's group called The Forum of five to eight men who are looking to live like I once was. And I have spaces opening in my men's renaissance coaching program. Email me at info at if you'd like to learn more. Just know there is more in you. Are you ready to discover it? Well said. Well said. I mean, because the empire will will blame whatever it needs to to accomplish whatever goals. It doesn't matter whether the blame is accurate or not, or there's anything, it'll construct whatever narrative it needs to, right? And so we've been living in we've been living in a, a period of time where Christianity and masculinity have been blamed for us being here. Patriarchy, totally. right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, right? That's why that's how we got here as a civilization. And so it makes sense that, you know, Bitcoin will take on some of that as well, you know, just to be, just to be prepared, you know, for an all out, all out assault, 
right on on yeah. on the things that are are most precious. And I'm I'm glad that we got here because I think um, it gets right to the heart of uh, what toxic mask maximalism, toxic masculinity, right? This idea that standing up for your principles and your beliefs and being aggressive and outspoken about it is somehow toxic or or destructive. And, you know, I listened to, I think you spoke in 2021 at the Bitcoin conference about, mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. that. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to touch on that thread. And when I said, how did you get here? Like at the very start of the conversation, how did you get here to where you are with Bitcoin? I didn't want to mm-hmm. lead the question, you know, to say like, because I think this toxic mask maximalism thing is really, really important in part just to take away this term toxic, because why is it that it's called toxic to defend forcefully your beliefs and values? Right. Mm-hmm, what, mm-hmm. Let's, but let's go into that, because I think that's the that's the state. That's the, the place where men have to root themselves and be like, OK, call me whatever you want. I'm going to defend with my dying breath mm-hmm. and every and every key on my keyboard and every and, you know, and every bullet in this magazine my right to live the way that I feel free. And you don't like that. I'm sorry about your feelings, but I'm going to do it anyway. So I really mm-hmm. wanted to get to the subject. I think it's, it's so important. It really is. I think that was one of the other things that really drew me into Bitcoin. And I, I kind of found that subset of Bitcoiners relatively early on in my mm-hmm. journey. Um, because I guess I've, yeah, once again, I, I was... One of the few things that I found before Bitcoin, and this was through doing a bunch of Tony Robbins work, and, and he was one of the first people who introduced me to the the concept of polarity. And and he mm. is a fucking masculine presence, man. Like if you know, if masculinity is kind of like presence and frame, like that motherfucker is walking presence and frame. Like mm-hmm. you know, and and when I when I was younger, he was probably the most influential uh, male presence i guess in my life and and even though i mean i I met him a couple times personally but even though it was kind of like a you know it wasn't a totally personal thing like going to the to the conferences of his really left an impact on me of like how a man presents himself and and you know holds frame like and and i man i saw him fucking tear apart like men women and children on stage like you know like women like acting like victims and stuff like it doesn't Mm -hmm. give him a fucking inch doesn't give them a millimeter yep. just fucking yep. tears them apart and and not from a place of like i'm you know uh like not from a place of you're a piece of shit but from a place of like this is the truth and i will fucking stand this ground and yep. there is no amount of feminine grace that you can use to move this mountain the mountain mm-hmm. is the fucking mountain mm-hmm. and and that kind of stuff left left an impact on me and i think it taught me in many ways to stand my ground like when i found something of truth i was like well fuck you like <laughs> i don't care this is this is true like I, I know for a fact two plus two equals two and there's nothing you can tell me to change my fucking mind like this mm-hmm. is this is the truth um and and that i think played a, a real role when i when i was first entering the bitcoin space like and, and it's funny if you look at my writing back in the early days it's kind of, I call it the nice Svetsky period. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I was, you know, writing about like Bitcoins, you know, I, I think one of my early pieces was like uh, Bitcoin money, homo sapiens and evolution or some, some shit like that. Right. And I was like talking about how yeah. like money evolved and how humans evolved and all this sort of stuff. And like, you know, maybe there was a couple of F-bombs in there, like just me being like, you know, my language is a little bit flary, but 
I like to it. say the least. Yeah. Um, Speak clearly. The 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 language was very, I don't know, like nice. I guess like I can't think of another yeah. thing to say. But I still I still like called out stupidities. So it's always been in me. And what happened was I found this uh, this guy that I connected with whose name was Rory, and he was in like the toxic Bitcoin maximalist groups. Like there was a Telegram group. And he and I connected. We were like two of the only guys who were talking about Bitcoin in Australia at the time that while everybody else was going through shit coins, like it was yeah. the 2016, 2017 shit coin phase and everyone was making money. And the only two guys who seemed to be very vocal on Twitter and both were in Australia. So we kind of connected and he kind of brought me into the group. And I found this whole kind of so-called Bitcoin toxic uh, toxic Bitcoiners uh, group. And I don't know, man, I, I feel like I got lucky coming into that group early on because I found a bunch of people. Now, look, mind you, there's always, you know, some dickhead, you know, in everything, like, you know, they kind of take it too far or whatever. But even in the ones that take it too far, there's like a good kernel of truth of like, hey, man, he's actually calling out someone or whatever the case is. Like there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of noise, but there's still some signal in the noise. Mm-hmm. And and I just found these people who were willing to, I don't know, live and die by the intellectual sword, to to put Amen. it, you know, one way. And and they would just go out there and say it as it is, and not back down. And yeah, man, it's it's become like an immune system for Bitcoin. And you know, people have come out and said, oh, the immune system is kind of eating it, eating itself. And it's like, no, fuck you, no, it's not. The immune system is still doing its job. It's still pushing scammers out it's still making you know grifters life's hard like it's doing all the things that it needs to do um and you know yep sometimes you know it might overreach with some things but by and large it's 95 percent positive and five percent you know childish but you, you can't have the 95% positive without the 5% childish because there's no such thing as perfection. It's, it's right. always going to overreach and it's always going to sort of play on that line. So, yeah, man, I think one thing Bitcoin has seemed to have done well, and this is where I think a lot of us have come onto the, then really leaned into the masculine fray, is this idea of we got labeled toxic Bitcoiners by all the shit coiners because we kept calling them out. Um, and toxic Bitcoiners, toxic masculine, hey, yep. Here we are. What I what I uh, I told Laser, I said uh, I'm a toxically masculine, toxic maximalist. <laughs> Try and say that five times fast, right? <laughs> but you know, mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. but the the things the things go together because when you really, um, I guess, grok, you know, to use that phrase from Stranger in Strange Land, when you really get it on this deep embodied level, and you understand the way that all the pieces fit together, you understand that no, a no one's going to hand it to you. Like the empire is not going to be like, here you go. You know, mm-hmm. enjoy that, right? You're going to have to fight yep. for all of us are going to have to fight for, well, first of all, we have to fight for our masculinity because the entire gravity of our civilization, media, culture, electromagnetic waves, uh, you know, food, name it, right? It's all mm-hmm. draining us of testosterone. It's all draining us of morality. It's all, it's all draining us of the ability to be outspoken, social media, all of it, right? So you have to fight for every last bit of masculinity that you can. Right. And that, and that, and when people push back on that and you push back on them, then they go, whoa, whoa. Right. It's like, that's so, don't be so toxic. It's like, I, first of all, I reject that label. Right. I'm fighting for who I am. I'm fighting for what I believe in. 
and and that will just show up at increasingly large um, levels of we well, might say the the fractal right for within mm-hmm. yourself like we have to, you have to push back within yourself on the feminizing influence in your own mind and heart and decisions and then as you expand outward you'll experience it in your inner circles right and then you'll experience it say at work and then you'll experience it in I don't know in uh, on social media and then you'll experience it at the level of society and culture and you have to fight for these things and you have to be prepared to fight for these things against overwhelming resistance um, but if you're not prepared to fight for these things and they're not prepared you know to to go up against that overwhelming resistance something somewhere will take you down and that doesn't mean that you have to do it perfectly either and that's the part that I really I'm really glad that you hit on yeah sure so so 5% of the time you're really childish and not skillful at it right but that doesn't invalidate the rest of the effort and that's the oh, part yeah. that I think really that is really difficult it's like haha look you screwed up here it's like yeah but I'm fighting the good fight what are you up to yeah what are you doing exactly i, I think the the word fighting, I think, to me is really important. Is that I used to have this um, my old Facebook, Jesus, like ten years ago was a uh, was this it was this funny meme. It was the Spartacus um, show, mm-hmm. and it says um, violence doesn't solve everything, but it's a good fucking start. <laughs> so it's kind of like you know, this, and and it's got like this guy like chopping someone's head off or something. Right, and you know it's um I think. You know, again, it's a joke, it's a meme, but there's some truth in it in the sense that fighting in itself is, um, th- th- there's something masculine about fighting. There's like testosterone, for example, is an as needed hormone. The reason it's dropped to a degree, like or not to a degree, but to a large degree in mm-hmm. modern uh, society is that we're no longer like testosterone naturally increases when you have resistance mm-hmm. and when you have and and the closer that resistance is to the threat of death or damage, the more testosterone boosts. Mm-hmm. And you you look at, I mean, go to a prison and see those people. None of them are on testosterone injections, but they're Probably all not. fucking jacked as fuck. Yeah, um, because they are in a position of you know that they're that they're at the border between you know life and death uh, on a consistent basis and. What did we as human beings and, you know, like we were exposed to the elements, we were exposed to, you know, uh, danger, warfare, all sorts of stuff on a consistent basis all throughout history. And in order to survive, we formed these, you know, hierarchies that revolved around the patriarchy, revolved around the father being responsible for the safety of everyone. So he was always in a position of risk. So when you're in that position, Mm -hmm. your testosterone naturally has to be higher. And I think um the it's not just fighting but also the threat of fighting or the threat of danger naturally spikes it it's it's an as needed um like if, if you're working in a fucking office or in a closet you don't need much testosterone right come out of the closet um, come out. Yeah, I'm, gonna to, I'm gonna have to come out bro. Um, we'll explain that to the viewers in a minute <laughs> so the um the i i think the manifestation of that, like the the ability to say no and fuck you and that's mm-hmm. wrong and do all of that sort of stuff is um is as masculine as it gets because the masculine forges itself like iron sharpens iron, right? And mm-hmm. and that's how the masculine responds. It responds to competition, it responds to risk, it responds to resistance. Um feminine doesn't feminine flows like when you push it like it goes with the push but you know you push me i'm gonna fucking push you back Mm -hmm. and 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 that 
is not toxic, that is completely 100 million percent natural. And th this is, I, I remember watching this video a while ago, which was fucking terrifying, was um, like not, not even just terrifying, but fucking disgusting and stupid and moronic and idiotic and every other, you know, derogatory term I could give it. But it was, um, it was a leaked video of, I think it was like a CIA briefing or whatever, and they were talking about, uh, you know, they had this scientist in there talking about this new drug that they fixed up that uh, you give it to someone and it can biologically uh, lower their aggression and their propensity towards violence. Hmm. Now, when I saw that, I was like, holy fucking shit. Like, what are these fucking maniacs thinking? Because... Yes, it might sound all nice to, you know, think that you can just remove the violence piece, you know, because, hey, violence is bad, so we must remove the violence piece. But what you do is you actually, in doing so, you will remove the, the signal, for example, for testosterone. You will mm -hmm. remove the signal for the man to become the protector, the provider, the leader. You'll remove the competitive edge of an individual. You basically will turn the male into a eunuch, like a castrated fucking useless turd that exists to maybe put some half functional sperm into a sperm bank for um, some woman to hopefully impregnate herself. Like, like it, it basically destroys everything. And, and that kind of thinking, this is why, you know, I'm no longer supportive of scientists and all this sort of stuff, because I think they're all fucking out of their minds. Like they all, want to um, clinically fix everything by fucking around with, you know, natural human predispositions and hormones and chemistry and all this sort of stuff, thinking that they're going to engineer us into uh, more peaceful, better beings. When in reality, like this ability to fight, this ability to compete, this ability to, to resist, these are all absolutely key characteristics of the masculine male hero archetype like all of those things like that's what it is and you know you can't just remove violence without removing all of the good that that characteristic entails so anyway i just thought of that as i was speaking no i i, I agree with you and that's been the that's been the entire thrust of civilization at least in America and the West, probably since, um, well, since like the 1960s, really overtly, because um, I, I wish I could remember the name of the book. It'll be in the show notes if I can remember what it is. But there was an author who um, he wrote about the era of the 1960s. And he said that what happened there, which is, of course, a time before any of our memory, was that um, the um, the rebels, this is the way the author framed it. I may not agree with this totally, but uh, but we'll take something from his argument. The rebels of culture said, look at world, look at the horrors of World War II, you know, look at Europe, look at the atomic bomb, you know, look at the environmental devastation, look at slavery, look at the Great Depression, look at all of this stuff. The people who have been running civilization, the, the white men, essentially, is what they said, the patriarchy, mm -hmm. whatever frame, they have failed and it's time for new leaders. And, and this is in his argument, the elite said, you know what, you're right we quit. You get it. Right. And so they handed over the keys, Like That's the mm -hmm. argument that the book made. So the, so the elites handed over the keys to these rebels who then immediately set about taking away everything 
that had made that world, namely male aggression, right? That's, you know, he said, look at, look at this horrible devastation. We need to frame everything in terms of mother earth and coming together and mm-hmm. all these hippie 1960s kind of values. Look at war and devastation. And you see this and you see this and even in the matrix with agent Smith, like humans are a cancer on the planet. They're consumptive. And then you see these, mo- this is at the end of um, the movie, the abyss, right? The movie, The Abyss, there's the director's cut version, which was a James Cameron movie about these, they discover these aliens at the bottom of the ocean. And they're like, why shouldn't we destroy humanity? Look at war and all those terrible things. And then the fifth element, you know, as Lilu, this alien from another planet or whatever, is looking at the history and she comes across war and she gets all disillusioned and love as a solution. You see this propaganda show up over and over mm-hmm. again to remove male aggression from society because it's ultimately destructive. And that's been the whole thing. And so as men, we wake up now in, you know, in the first part of the 21st century and we wonder, who are we? I mean, we spend mm-hmm. our lives getting run over, taken advantage of, you know, being weak, you know, whatever, whatever term you want to give passive nice guys, right? And discover it's not actually getting us anywhere and it's driving our civilization off a cliff. And then we wake up to that and recognize that the thing that I've been told to never use, this sword in the stone, is what I actually need to live my life. Mm-hmm. And so many mm-hmm. men are terrified I deal with this in, in my in my coaching practice. So many men are terrified because they wonder if I pull the sword from the stone, who will I become? Will I mm-hmm. become the tyrant I've already I've always been told I will be? And I say no, because you because you worry about becoming that is why you will not be. That you'll pull mm-hmm. the sword from the stone and you'll become the righteous man that you always want to be. But you have to learn to harness your aggression wisely in in the face of an entire culture that says aggression is the worst part of men. Aggression is one of the best parts of men. It's not, mm-hmm. the, it's not the only part of men, but it's one of the best parts of men when properly harnessed. And so we experience we experience the opposite of that almost every day. Totally, man. You brought some chills down my spine listening to that. Like mm-hmm. I think uh, aggression really is like without it. And I think this is in part like as much as I call my dad like an example of what not to be in life. Like he was definitely an aggressive. Like that was his you know, part of his masculine um, position, whereas, you know, he, he was wrong in many other ways, but he was a good example for me to see, um, you know, that kind of um, ability to sort of, yeah, unleash something that, mm-hmm. you know, when, when the time needed, when the time came to like protect or provide or something like that. Um, I mean, there was this one time when we were at this train station, me and our brother were in the back of the car and some junkie off the street, like, poked his head into the car and my dad like was across the road like saying bye to someone at the at the train and you know he fucking ran down mm. chased this guy down the street went to fucking beat him up and it was like I mean for me as kids like it was embarrassing but seeing that like you know there was a there was a level of subconscious knowing that you know someone was there like um you know protecting us but you know that that's gone today like you know, most most of these feminized men i was at the markets in california the other day and there was this woman like you could just see it in the body language man it was so disgusting like she's got the baby with her and she's walking ahead and she's got a shirt that says um save trans kids Mm. i was looking at that but then you know you look six or seven steps behind her is this you know emasculated subhuman of a male like Mm-hmm. walking with her i can't even call him a man because it's not what he was he was a male that's it just a member of the male like castrated member of the male species just walking mm. there and you could just see the 
you know, the, the yeah. lifelessness in him just walking behind this like woman who was taking the lead. And like, I was like, imagine living a life like that. Like, I, I bet like she's the breadwinner most probably like yeah. he'd be at home probably looking after like complete role inversion. And I mean, th- there's, there's tyranny. If you ever wanted a, you know, a portrait of tyranny, that's yep. tyranny right there. And you know what the, the strength of a man, you know, stems from, as you said, the, when you gave the definition of meek, it's you know those who have swords who know how to use them but choose to keep them sheathed. Mm-hmm. It's like the 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 best men, and again, this is a Jordan Peter-esque thing, right? Is the best men are monsters, you know, those who know they can do damage, but have the ability to restrain themselves. And you know, restraint is another masculine thing. That's mm-hmm. a masculine virtue. Restraint is not a feminine virtue. Uh unrestraint is actually a feminine virtue and that is that's one of the things that makes them so beautiful is because they can be completely unhinged they can open up they can be free they can flow um but you know in that chaos the man the masculine can remain centered stable restrained and can be a wall in amongst that chaos and that's what draws that's that's what creates that polarity between us and you know we live in a world today of complete unrestraint like restraint is out the window responsibility out the window um aggression out the window like all of these virtues and characteristics are being thrown out and we you know we're living in complete relativism and no one knows like as we sort of said earlier everything matters so nothing matters and everything's meaningless um you know and everyone's walking around nihilistic and apathetic and they don't know why they think it's an absence of prozac (laughs) right Let's take some more Prozac to fix the situation. Yeah, more, more, more external medications, right? More things yeah. that you consume. If I consumed something, it'll make it better. It's not that I need to reform anything inside inside myself. So this is so so. I'm glad we got to cover all this because to me, these are some of the underlying foundational themes that are behind the Uncommunist Manifesto. That you know, first of all, it's a manifesto, right? Like. There's a, there's, a, there's a distinctive meaning about that word. It's a call to action. It's a call to arms, mm-hmm. right? And it's a call to arms for what? Un, uncommunism, right? Yes. Uh, and I love, and, and it's sort of like this, this uh, very short to the point, not, not too short, but like brief to the point statement of values against the communist values that we are being, that are being forced onto us. And so I, I definitely wanted to get into that because I, I learned a ton from the book. It gave me a whole bunch of new directions to think in and understand Bitcoin about and, and masculinity as well. So let's, let's start talking about the Uncommunist Manifesto. Let's do it. I think maybe I'll quickly say the, where the name came from. It's, um, we, were, we, we didn't know what the hell to call the bloody book. We we're thinking the Individualist Manifesto, the Sovereign Manifesto, the Capitalist Manifesto, the, the, the Naturalist Manifesto. <laughs> figure out a freaking name for the damn thing. Um, and yeah, we're at a dinner and it was actually, it was actually Mark's wife. It was just like one of those random ideas. We're sitting there, we're eating dinner. And she's like, what about the uncommunist manifesto? And we just kind of like looked at each other. We're like, it's actually pretty fucking good. Yeah. And anyway, we rolled with that. And it's amazing. Like I've never been through the book writing process. Like I've written, you know, I, I think I did some math the other week and I was like, I think I've written over a million words, like when it comes to all the articles may, may even be trending towards 2 million now, but 
sitting down and writing a book and then having to like edit it and format it and distill it and turn it into something uh, coherent and punchy is, a, is an interesting, was an interesting journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about the, like the structure of the book, like, because it, it follows a very well-defined path. Like you, you lay out the foundational notions of your argument, especially the whole section at the beginning of the definitions, by the way, that was great. That was so great because awesome. it, it established this common language for me as a reader for you and Mark as authors, like to get me understanding your, your frame and then operating within it for the remainder of the arguments that you made. So let's start with, let's go through the sections of the book. Totally. So the definitions part that this is funny. I, as I was writing, I was coming up, you know, like I was using these words and I was thinking in my head, I was like, we, we want to present an argument here and it needs to be coherent. And as you said, like in the past when I've done either debates or whatever with someone, I've always tried to create a common ground and say, look, these are the words we're using and this is what they mean. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to agree on that, then we can actually have a productive conversation. And yeah, like I, I, I pushed for having the definitions included. Mark was like, oh yeah, but we're going to, you know, the book's going to get a little bit long and it's, you know, I was like, not nah, fuck that. We have to have the definitions in there because mm-hmm. if we lay that out at the beginning, um, you know, I mean, at least those who read them, because I know some people probably skip the definitions and just go straight to the book, but those who read those definitions, they're kind of primed and they're like, okay, so that's what he means. That's what he Mm -hmm. means. That's what he means. And then, yeah, like when we, you know, to sort of give some more context, we we sat down and the the first bit of writing that I actually did was, um, was I took elements from the original Communist Manifesto and I just Mm -hmm. rebutted them. And we we're going to write the book like that for a time being, like we we're just going to rebut certain segments. But kind of looked at it and like, mm, doing like a book of rebuttals doesn't, you know, it's not as, it's not as standalone. Like it doesn't have its own spirit. It's kind of like a, mm. just a response to something. And it's just weird how it just came from the void of both our subconscious. Like we just sat down and just started like writing and, all of a sudden it started to form itself into this thing with its own points. And I mean, yeah, if, um, you know, we can start at chapter one, if you like, and let's do it go through some of those. Yeah. Can we, can we, can we start with the, with a couple of the best definitions that I like? I'm so grateful that you, I'm so grateful that you guys uh, took the risk of putting that in because yes, I can understand from an author's perspective, like, Oh, someone might just skip over all the definitions or it creates all this, lag time before I actually start making my arguments. But the definitions that I was, as, as I read them, they were foundational to the arguments and they were actually mm-hmm. making the arguments already. Like I could see the argument yeah. through the lens of the definition. So the two that I want to start with are, are money and, uh, and capitalism. Cause I thought those were mm-hmm. my two favorite definitions that you started with. And I was like, Oh, here we go. This is going to happen now. Yeah, totally. So yeah, the, the capitalism one, I think is one of the strongest, most poignant points mm-hmm. in the entire book is that, people keep trying to frame capitalism as some political modality. And the big point that we made was that, no, 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 capitalism is not a, it's not politics. It's just process. Mm -hmm. It has existed since the beginning of time. Since the first time we picked up a stick and threw it at an animal to, you know, make, to, to save time and energy in acquiring food. Um, that was capitalism. And then we shared that food with somebody else who made a fire and that was division of labor, right? So like <laughs> we, we've been doing this stuff from the beginning of time. And like, if you think about, you know, human action toward a goal or a pursuit, um, 
it is, you know, this constant transformation of, you know, some form of chaos into higher degree of order and, you know, creating a new chaos to, for, for greater order. And we just do that. That is what we do. We're engineers, we're creators, we're builders. This is what humans do. And when you think about capitalism in that sense, and, and, and I can substantiate this by saying, like, how does one define capital? Well, physical capital is like time, energy, and scarce resources. And, you know, maybe metaphysical capital is like ideas, uh, uh, mathematics, you know, well, maybe I wouldn't even put mathematics in there, like kind of ideas and maybe uh, uh, reputation is probably another piece of capital that is a little bit more metaphysical. Mm-hmm. But th- those those things, you know, we, we take them, we we form them into something, and then we produce something else out of it. And that process has always existed and it exists in every single political modality i don't care like capitalism exists in communism it's just mm-hmm. the black market like people are still trading and doing stuff that's yeah. that's what it is uh capitalism exists in socialism it exists in fashion it exists in all of these things anything where there is some sort of level of productivity it's there the question is how much do we suffocate the natural process through political machinations and like, you know, basically squeezing the life out of this natural process that humans undertake. And the more we do that, the more we basically kill everything around us. Um, And we've seen it time and time again, when we get in the way of that natural process, we distort things whether they're small distortions, as we've sort of had in the more quote unquote liberal West, um, or whether it's been um, you know real disastrous consequences like starvation and communism and all that sort of stuff, you know, where it's crazy. I was reading this Chinese history thing recently, and you know how they try and like whitewash these stuff. Like mm-hmm. maybe whitewash isn't even the right word. They're trying to like gloss over, like the yeah. oh, you know, the great leap forward. Oh, you know, look, only fifty million people died. Like you know, Oops. it was it was a small miscalculation of no big deal. You know, on the part of the communists. It's all right, you know. Um, we'll just make more. Yeah, exactly. It's fine. Um, so it's just it's just anyway. I, I think that that piece I think was just so important because. We, we are all capitalists by the very fact that we're alive. Um, and yeah, when, when, we, when we strip the political notion out of it, I think we, we can see it for what it is. And then our goal should be to use our time, energy, resources, reputation, ideas more wisely, more effectively, more efficiently. Who in their right mind would be against that? Right. Hopefully nobody, but clearly there are a few people against that. Well, there are a lot of people not in their right mind, right? Well, that too, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's actually the majority. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, that's Um, what... Go ahead, sorry. So, no, no, I was just going to go to money, but maybe... No, please. Recap this. Oh, well, I mean, what I really liked about that definition was that it, it, as I said, you depoliticized it. Because capitalism, you know, is one of those those loaded words, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, love is a loaded word. Like, the the meaning Mm -hmm. of the word love changes based on the context. The meaning of the word world changes based on the context and the meaning of the word capitalism changes based on the context. And it's really annoying. So the, the definition that you provided really helped me understand the essence of it. Like you really cracked mm-hmm. into the heart of, of what capitalism is in a depoliticized way. It's like, yes, this is evolutionary process of, 
of creative destruction, let's say, and evolution towards a greater state of efficiency. Right? Mm-hmm. Brilliant, brilliant. And yeah. because because you can't really you can't really argue that that's what it is because that is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. You, whether whether you it takes away this the um, the scorn, the shame of the word, you know. Oh, you totally. capitalist, yeah. Mark and I went back and forth on this because he's like, oh, you know, we should use the word free markets. And I was like, no, nah, man, fuck them. We're not letting them take this word away. And I was yeah. like, they've taken every other word away. But like, yeah. this is this is a fundamental thing. Like capital is, it's, it's our freaking lifeblood, you know, and to, to, to do better and more with our capital is the most righteous and virtuous thing we can do. Like that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, to squander it is sinful it's stupid like our capital is precious and you know i i can't you know like when, when you depoliticize it as you said it's it you you look at it and you're like i, I want to do better like i want to capitalize <laughs> um well said like that, that's what i want to do so yeah that was one and then yeah, the money. Now I don't have the definition in front of me, but I think it was something to do with like language of value, right? Money like, is yeah, just money is the, the language of value. Full stop. Oh, is that all I had? Oh, That's that all you had. Is the, all right. It's just like this. I highlighted that. I and I read on the Kindle. I highlighted that. You didn't even elaborate. <laughs> money is the language of value. Mic drop. Walk out. Right. That's it. <laughs> there we go. So I mean, yeah, that's that. I think if if people can get that through their head then um, I think they'll maybe start to go on the path of understanding why Bitcoin is so profound is that yeah. now we have a language that, uh, you know, at the, at the moment we're, we're all speaking gibberish basically uh, in the realm of value mm-hmm. and no one's understanding anything. Um, we don't even understand ourselves in the, right. in the fiat language of value. Whereas this one, like, it's it's and and I guess this language transcends the language we're speaking now. Like we're speaking English now, and we're conveying ideas, but like the language of value is kind of even deeper than that because two people who don't speak a language through which they can share ideas can still express value in some way and trade that. And that like it's it's that classic. Um, someone made an example of like the the Afghans uh, when the Americans went there, and it's like. They didn't speak their language. They didn't, you know, have the same um, religion, but they sure could use the the billion dollars of cash. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. like, you know, so that that language of value is there. And you know, even though the US dollar is a shit coin and all of that, <laughs> um, the fact that you know money sort of transcends that is um, even in the most deranged, weird settings, it kind of you know it it speaks of, of its own so yeah and one of the ideas that i wanted to kick around was we're living in an age of language of language manipulation right in this mm-hmm. 1984 mm-hmm. kind of way like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. ignorance is intelligence or you know war is war is peace that sort of thing like that's going mm-hmm. on our language is First of all, our language is being dumbed down like our words are being removed from our vocabulary one word that i think about a lot that we don't have anymore is shameless. Like we hear the word pride a lot, right? And and on the and extreme pride is called hubris. What we don't have is shameless. Shamelessness means like it masquerades as pride. In fact, it's actually mm-hmm. like I just can't be shamed. I, I don't know. It's it's a ment- it's a form of mental illness to be shameless, right? 
a shameless self-promoter. No one likes that person, right? Mm-hmm. No one likes a hubristic person who thinks they can't be defeated either. But so that word has been removed. And so our language is being manipulated. And so if money is the language of value and money is being manipulated, then our language is being manipulated and we can't actually communicate anymore. Totally. Yeah. It ties back into like what we said earlier about um, how individuals orient themselves in the the game of civilization, which is, you know, the economic game is we, you know, we orient, we make value judgments, we make evaluations, we then take action based on those evaluations, we get feedback, we then reorient based on the feedback, and then we perform new actions. And this kind of step-by-step process is what humans do implicitly or explicitly, you know, overtly or covertly, we we do it subconsciously or consciously. Um, And we're doing that all the time. We're we're always taking in feedback and always doing stuff. Now, if that feedback is, you know, this language of value, and as you said, if it's getting manipulated or distorted, like not only is the initial orientation wrong, but the feedback is wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then when we're trying to orient ourselves, like we don't really know what we're doing. Like it's just, we're, we're in this, realm of noise 360 degree noise and mm-hmm. some of us seem to still be able to navigate inside that noise and can still you know maintain some sort of connection to a moral compass in that noise but it's fucking difficult man mm. like and and think about like how much of our nervous energy goes into that it's like you you know we lose nine tenths of our energy just trying to maintain moral direction <laughs> And then we have 10% of our energy left to actually do something with. And we wonder why we're not effective. Like we're using it all up. Yeah. We're trying to resist the the winds and the currents and the tides and everything to to steer our ship of our lives forward towards something. Just maybe Mm -hmm. make any amount of material progress to hold on to what we have, let alone Mm -hmm. be able to grow morally. Like it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. So, yeah, I think, I think that's just such a, Anyway, thank you for pulling that one out. I I actually forgot that I'd just done a single sentence, but yeah. Oh, it was a, it was a, it was a brilliant because it didn't that, that that notion didn't need to be unpacked at all. Like money is mm-hmm. a language of value. Boom, it's great. So then on the on the back of those definitions, let's talk about how the Uncommunist Manifesto kind of unfolds as a as a as a statement of we'll call it a statement of belief. Actually, what you believe about the world, beliefs that you and I share. Like how do you how do you build on top of that to the structure of the book? So, hmm. I guess let me let me you know what pull up. I just want to pull up the book in front of me because I'm going to pull yeah. a couple components out. Yeah, make. I'll this. bring. I've got my. I've got my Kindle right here. I should have should have been a little bit more prepared for having this in front of me. But anyway, it's okay. While you're doing that, I will explain to our viewers why Alex is in a closet because Alex is moving <laughs> house today. And, and so graciously agreed to uh, to come on the podcast with me. So he made a makeshift makeshift recording studio in in the closet. Oh, which mad respect for that, by the way. Like, yes, I'm going to do this conversation if I have to do it in the closet. It's really good, actually. Thank you. For sure, brother. Anytime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why you don't have um, it up, right? Why you don't have the the PDF up with you? Indeed. So okay, I um I just found it. So. Yeah, I think the first the first big thread was uh you know and the, the chapter is entitled static versus dynamic classes. And and I think 
this is an idea I've toyed with for a while. And it's funny, the older I get, the more conservative I become. And <laughs> right. The more, um, and, and I guess that is with everyone, maybe, maybe not everyone, but, you know, at least people who Pay value maturity, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly, yes. <laughs> you know, maturity and conservatism are kind of like intertwined. But I, you know, pe- people in the past have called me, you know, oh, you're a classicist. And <laughs> I don't know, at this point I'm like, okay, maybe I am. Um, because <laughs> I, love it. I honestly think that, we have to have um, classes of people. And, and I don't, this is sort of where the, the book kind of delineates between static and dynamic classes is mm. if you want to build a business and work 120 hours a week and, you know, pursue uh, entrepreneurial excellence and build Amazon, whatever the you know version we mm-hmm. want to pick um, of a business, and you choose to make that sacrifice, and you choose to take that risk, and you go and build something. Um, and me, I value, I don't know, surfing and hanging out and living a much more easy life. I'm happy with salary, whatever you know. I just work 35 hours a week. Or something, or even let's say in a you know fifty years from now, where our purchasing power has actually retained some value, mm-hmm. we'll be working less and we'll have more time for other pursuits. You know, I, I like art, reading, philosophy, whatever. You know, so I work twenty hours, you do one hundred twenty. Mm-hmm. We one hundred percent should be in different economic classes at the very least. Yeah, um, and if we're in different economic classes, there is things that you know. Uh, I guess ancillary or peripheral to those, which might be the kind of uh, groups of people we hang around, like um, the kind of clubs we're in, the kind of people we associate with, and everything. There will be different classes, and I guess in the book we kind of talk more a little bit more about economic classes. Mm-hmm. But I think you know th- this idea that people are strutted out has always existed and will always exist. And when we try and remove these classes and create some sort of fantasy utopia where we're all the same is when we destroy civilization. Agree. Um, and we've seen that time and time again um, when, like, because here's the thing, the only way to equalize everyone is to actually chop everyone down to size. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem with that, there's always someone stupider um, or there's always someone more incompetent, or there's always someone more lazy, or there's always someone more immoral, or whatever the case is. So you have to keep chopping down, 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 till you get to the lowest common denominator, mm-hmm. and you basically have a civilization full of morons. Um, and that is maybe nice for central planners because then it's easy to plug a few um, no longer variables. You know, like it's easy to plug some constants <laughs> into a spreadsheet yeah. and come out with a uh, you know a functional model um it's very hard to put a bunch of you know variables that are infinitely variable into a spreadsheet of infinite infinite variability mm-hmm. and try and have a functional model it doesn't work so you know th- this this equalization sits you know in stark contrast to this idea of uh diverse um inequality it's, I think it's another concept that I talk about in chapter one is dynamic inequality mm-hmm. is that 
Um, you can't have equality. In fact, equality is uh, inverse to fairness. And and what a lot of people say unknowingly when they say oh, we need equality is like no, no, you're actually advocating for fairness because like mm. if I want to be fair, the outcome is going to be unequal. But if I'm equal, the um, the process of getting to being equal is like unfair. Um, you know, I have to take yes. from someone and give to someone else and try and equal everything else. So, so, so anyway, so, so dynamic inequality and this sort of static and dynamic classes are, you know, sort of intertwined uh, ideas and, and they sort of both uh, dovetail into each other through this concept of merit. And this is sort of what we discussed in that is, you know, the, I mean, even the feudal system, like it emerged from um, previous like you know the knighthood and the the warrior class and the people who actually went out and fought and became property uh, owners and stuff like that and even that was far more functional like france the greatest like richest kingdom on earth by the 1700s uh, emerged through a functional hierarchy of classes now there may not have been uh, great mobility mm-hmm. in those classes yeah. And that's, you know, what I think we can do better. But there was still some sort of functional hierarchy. When the commies came in, they just obliterated all the classes. They destroyed the patriarchy. They equalized everyone. And what did we get? We had a power vacuum um, and we brought extreme levels of tyranny and unsophisticated, non-noble tyranny uh, into it, right? right? Like at least any tyranny by kings and nobles was like kind of like, you know, whip a few people and, um, you know, like, you know, yes, there was some, you know, guillotines and this and that, but, but it wasn't like the level of atrocity yes. that you had with um, these, you know, completely uh, what are, like secular communist collectivist kind of things that came afterwards. There was no nobility in any of that. Like once we wiped out all the fucking nobility um, from civilization, but anyway, coming back to classes, So all the kind of class systems that have existed before, they've all suffered from uh, stultification or being relatively static. And, you know, maybe maybe we as a civilization just had to go through this period of the last 200 years where we had to introduce dynamism back in. You know, we've done a lot of damage in the process of doing that, and maybe there was a better way to do that. But... You know, here we are now at the kind of at the verge of a of a new age where we can reinstitute classes based off merit mm-hmm. um, and input and value. And I think that's just such an important idea is that like even if you were, for example, you know, born to a wealthy family and you inherited, let's say, you know, a ridiculous amount of wealth. Well, you can't keep your position at the expense of someone else now by you know printing or taxing or borrowing and doing all that sort of stuff. Like the, the game changes and the ability to fall creates a um kind of like you know, if if I could jump off a cliff and instead of me dying, you died, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd just keep jumping off a cliff, right? <laughs> it's fun. But that, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I'd skydive and then someone else dies on my behalf. Like, what a great life. And, you know, I'd probably keep doing that. Um, but unfortunately, like, that's not how reality works. And, you know, when, when you kind of make uh, economic reality map uh, real reality, 
then all of a sudden, like, you can fall in, you know, your class position. Um, but also, if you were just unfortunate enough to be born you know, to a poor family or whatever, you can actually climb. And you sort of have this dynamic nature in these um, in these classes. So, yeah, I think I've rambled on about that, but mm. I don't know if there's any points or threads you want to pull on there. I mean, that's that's the thing that I think people don't understand about our, our world that makes that makes our current civilization or or has made it so powerful is that in the um, in the feudal era there were classes that classes were functional, you know, to more or less produced produced great wealth, but the classes were fixed. It was very rare that a that a peasant, you know, or or a laborer could become a knight. I don't even know that you could, mm-hmm. or that a knight could become a king. Everyone would just kind of mm-hmm. stick. I mean, it was was kind of stuck, right? Um, but what made American society different for a while was that class mobility was actually quite high. You know, like the, I remember maybe it was a couple of years ago, they were talking about, um, you know, the billionaire class or whatever, right? That's the, that's the soundbite. But what they don't talk about is that the billionaire class is not the same group of people year over year or like the elite or the 1% people fall out, right? And people climb up. It's this giant churn. But then communism has this idea that like, oh, there's only ever two classes of people. That's it, right? It's, there's no there's no shades of gray. There's the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and they're they're forever going to be in conflict until the proletariat, this uniclass, takes over everything from the bourgeoisie, and then we're all flat, right? It's like it can't mm-hmm. tolerate it can't tolerate the ambiguity almost, right? And it even reduces even reduces familiar relations to to money and and the, and the whole thing and the and the quest to simplify things so that they're easy enough for us to understand and control, right? Rather than allowing people to have responsibility and take and take risks and rise and, and rise and fall in ways that aren't necessarily equal, but they are fair, <laughs> right? This gets back to the whole masculinity, femininity, and stuff like that. But that's kind of the that's kind of the, the, the pieces that I took from from that section of the book. Totally. There's one other piece I think is important, um, which is kind of the and you just touched on it there. It's you know all these collectivist uh, ideologies really try and reduce all the problems into what of the world into like one uh, easy to understand problem, mm-hmm. right? It's, yes. Yep. It's the bourgeoisie versus the thing. It's mm-hmm. like okay, um, and now th- there is power in simplicity, and I and I guess this is probably where uh, the communists got a lot of um, uh, traction mm-hmm. with their ideology. It's like you know find something clear to blame and just blame that. Mm. The problem is their access was a disaster because by creating such a simple um, problem and a vague classification for the problem with a complete lack of definition, like what is the bourgeoisie? Like, mm. I don't know, is it, am I a bourgeoisie because I was born to a, you know, a shop owner? Like, so should I then be killed? Like, am I... What the fuck is going on here? So mm. like where that line is, because that's vague and there was no definitions around who the problem was. And, and this is once again, you know, during the, um, the original French revolution, like the, when they, during the terror, actually they, um, they instituted laws. Uh, what was it like? Basically anyone who had like any uh, affiliation and they didn't, you know, define what affiliation meant with like you know royalists or the federalists who were pushing back against the the jacobins and the and the left was basically taken and got their heads chopped off and and the, the whole the whole moral of the story of uh you know that period of france was that 
because everything was so vague, they ended up all chopping each other's heads off. <laughs> so like Robespierre, who was like the the you know the person who was like the revolutionary, um, ended up like he he basically he betrayed his right hand man. <laughs> and there, there's a funny thing: his right hand man, I can't remember his name, was it Dante or something like that? Um, he on the way to getting his head chopped at the guillotine, he said, um, I only regret two things. One is that um, I'm still, you know, in my prime, like I'm, I'm good looking basically because he was a bit of a womanizer. But he said, number two is that um, I'm going to the guillotine uh, six weeks before Rospiet, you know, like <laughs> who sentenced him at the time. And the only thing he was wrong about was he was wrong by a couple of weeks because Rospiet ended up in the guillotine like three weeks later. But th- this is the thing, when you, when you, when you create like vagaries, um, around this stuff, which ties back to why we had definitions in the beginning. But anyway, where I'm getting to is like the, the other point that I think was poignant in this, which many Austrian economists have uh, talked about, is that the real struggle has never been, you know, one class against another because right. struggle is complex. Like we're always struggling against something and someone and like we're struggling against ourselves most of the time, really. Like, you know, I, we struggle to become better versions of ourselves. And when I look back at how ridiculous I was in my twenties, you know, like there was a struggle to emerge from that. So, so struggle is not necessarily the bad thing. Um, the, the real problem, and this is probably the real axis of the struggle that people need to understand is between the choice to uh, coerce or to cooperate with another. Mm-hmm. And this comes back to your point in the beginning about um, interdependence is that a mature, responsible adult understands that civilization is interdependent, understands that they can't do everything, understands, you know, and respects private property and has the ability to interact with others um, and chooses to cooperate because that is the responsible thing to do as opposed to coerce and take uh, in order to get ahead. And this is sort of like, you know, morality is intertwined in this, you know, responsibility is intertwined in this, uh, restraint is intertwined in this, but this is what it takes to build a mature individual and then therefore a, a, a mature uh, civilization or society. And all of these alternative ideologies, particularly on the left, are all about some form of coercion mm-hmm. in order to get the, you know, the means always justify the ends and the end is some fantastical idea of like some static equality. Um, so any means count because everything on the planet is unequal. So we'll just level everything. Um, and as soon as something sprouts a little bit, we'll go back and level it. And it you, like, it basically cannibalizes itself in the process of, doing so so anyway that that kind of distinction between coercion and cooperation is really important i think that is the struggle that people need to contend with and one is uh unhinged irresponsibility coercion and the other one is uh restraint and responsibility and frame Mm -hmm. um, and that is uh cooperation and and that's you know where the struggle is Mm -hmm. so yeah I just wanted to finish on that. Yeah, I mean, we we pull the we pull the threads all out of there, right? Like this is masculinity. This is this is the essence of it, right? You like that, 100%. right? You pull, you know, you cooperation versus versus coercion, right? Which one? Which one of these? Which one does does the masculine man choose, right? Does the competent masculine man choose, right? Are you going to coerce someone 
to behave? Or are you going to find a way? Um, are you going to find a way to um, now? There's a there's a degree to which you know you can bash ideas into each other, right? There's a degree to which that competition, right? Competition, coercion, all these things fit competence. All these things they all fit together, and this is this is why Bitcoin threads right through the middle of all of it because it it, ena- it mm-hmm. enables this on the level of the individual man to assert his independence, his sovereignty against the state, against coercion, you know, against, against economic and and financial coercion to begin to say, you know what, this is, this is how I'm going to, um, this is how I'm going to do this thing. And I I will no longer allow myself to, to be coerced right in this, in this, in this economic way. Draw strong, clear lines. I think that's one of my favorite things about um, Bitcoin and kind of you know, around this sort of ideology of responsibility, once again, it's like it's about drawing clear lines. Mm-hmm. This, this, this is where I stand, and you know that once again links back into the masculinity, into frame. You know, f- frame the very word mm. means like drawing some clear lines. Like this is my position. So, so yeah, I think then you mentioned the word competent, which is kind of like what we call the the second chapter and. We, I, I guess, I don't know. Was there a particular point you wanted to pull from this, um, this second chapter? I mean, the the overall case that I that I see you building at this stage in the in the book is just is this idea of, you know, that the that cooperation versus coercion is is contingent on the notion of a man being competent. If a man is incompetent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then on some level he must be coerced. I mean, maybe that's too hard of a word, right? Um, but if a man is um, if a man is competent, he feels completely capable of cooperating. Like let's put it that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally, totally. And 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 it was in this chapter where we wanted to kind of also delve into like you know what, what does um, a competent individual like how do they behave and what are they doing? There was some parts like where we talked about like family and relationship and the sacred union, um, which once again Marxists and uh, communists and all of this, they want to abolish all of these uh, these kind of like sacred institutions or sacred hierarchies in order to overturn everything. And I mean, the, the, the patriarchy and particularly the family was something. And, and I guess this is a classic projection on behalf of Marx and Engels and all of these people who Marx was a pathetic father he was an absent father yeah a couple of his kids died he couldn't provide so he projected his own bitterness and hatred and um, resentment onto other people who were clearly doing better mm-hmm. <laughs> because you know they provided they created they gave something to their offspring and he didn't and he couldn't and mm. instead of doing something about it he just bitched about it and basically created I mean, did, did you did you read the Communist Manifesto? No, I I, I haven't. I probably should. Oh man, it's just I've read his it's poetry. Like a, it's not very uh, good. Yeah, it's like brain cancer in a book, basically. <laughs> oh, like, dear. it's so bad. Like, and, and you know, <laughs> one star on Amazon. Just, that's it. Like, <laughs> it's minus five. If I could give it that. Like, um, it's just. So bad. Like not only this just like rambles on and contradicts himself throughout the book a hundred times, but um he goes on about like the you know the, there's sections in there where he says that the bourgeoisie views family, and I'm gonna paraphrase here, views family purely as um as a 
a mechanism for you know cash transactions or you know like yeah. basically purely commercial so he he negates this idea of like love and we tried to really i think in this chapter we talked about love and labor is that yeah it's it's really important to be able to like you know he he tries to frame first of all the cash transaction as bad so he makes that presupposition and then he says that um and because the bourgeoisie operates purely in the realm of the cash transaction their family and their relationships are just transactional um and that's it so everything is empty um and you know we kind of like push back on that on two dimensions dimension number one is that hold on idiot the cash transaction is very important because you must be able to uh measure you know the 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 quantum of value you've created through your labor in some way shape or form in order to transact it and trade it with somebody else Mm -hmm. um so so you have that that ability to transact uh you know cash payments as he calls them you know for labor is extraordinarily important um, but number two, there's a thing called love, which you may not have ever had experience with. I'm sorry, Marx. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the the thing is, I mean, just about everyone I know, yes, there is maybe a few uh, really shitty parents who have given zero love to their kids. But, I mean, if their kids survived past, you know, three years old, there was some love there in the beginning. So mm-hmm. I, I think this is almost a moot point. But, like, you know, no, no parent is, you know, giving an invoice to a one-year-old infant mm. for the milk coming out of their teeth. That's not how it works. Right. So, so, like, love existed from that point. Keeping a bill. And, yeah, like, you know, keeping this tally. Like, um, you know, he may have, but, you know, maybe that's why he's resentful <laughs> towards his kids. But, you know, like, these weird projections go on in this second chapter, and it's just weird reading, like, the Communist Manifesto and seeing the kind of crap he says. Like, you know, he talks about this, these bourgeoisie people and first of all, he doesn't interact with them. Second of all, he hates them. Yeah. And third, he apparently knows how their relationships are structured, um, which is madness. So, so we kind of say, look, most of these family and familiar relationships, they revolve around love first and labor second. Um, and, you know, you don't want to extend love beyond a certain boundary. And, and this is, again, a big leftist uh, misnomer today is that, you know, we should love everybody and respect them all equally like no you actually should fucking not unless you want to cheapen love and respect Amen. like if you loved and respected everybody equally then you you don't love and respect anyone like that that, that shit is should be as selective as it fucking gets and you know we have that like that you know the the, the institution of family is like where you you reserve the greatest amount of love um, and you use it there and you, you know, you, it's heaviest impact is there. Um, and then with others, you don't transact through mere love. You transact by measuring your relative value of the, you know, the, the labor and the input and what you've produced. And that's a functional society. Mm-hmm. You don't just remove both of those um, and make everything communal. It just doesn't work. And, and I think, you know, this is where the failings of communists and Marxists alike is like they have no notion of human psychology. They're like mathematically completely inept. Um, they're conceited. Uh, they, you know, they live in a constant state of projecting, you know, crap on others. Like it's so weird, man. There's so many contradictions. So yeah, that, that's what we really tried to do, I think, with this chapter. And then we have our little Ten Commandments in there, which are basically 
a flip on. He's he's got Ten Commandments in his second thing, which are ridiculous. Like a lot of people don't know that a whole series of them. Like he's got in there. Like he was the one of the first ones who came up with an idea of like. Um, I don't think he was the first. It must have been an, again bloody stupid French who came up with um, uh, progressive taxation, um, which to me is one of the dumbest ideas ever. It's like the more someone works and produces, the more you take from them. It's like if you ever wanted to disincentivize mm-hmm. more productivity, you do a progressive tax rate. If anything, like if I was ever gonna want to, like if I was ever gonna run a country, and I was gonna introduce taxation, the heaviest taxation would be on the lowest income earners. Um, and that would be an incentive to earn more. Mm. Um, it, it's like, that's what you want if you're going to fucking be taxing anyone. But anyway, <laughs> taxation of all kind is theft. So um, <laughs> yes. so let's just make that clear here. But that was, I think, his point number one or two or whatever, like the, the creation of um, uh, mass public education is a communist ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the centralization of all banking is also a communist ideology. Uh, concept and it's in his Ten Commandments in the Communist Manifesto. Um, how many of these are familiar in America? Huh. All three so far. Yeah. Um, you know yeah. the the nationalization of uh, transport and um, you know kind of like uh, I mean he obviously didn't have airwaves and radio waves back then, but basically you know what ended up happening in all of the modern states is like all of that stuff is all nationalized first and then it's sold off and rented out to. Uh, private enterprise so it's like a number of the you know the 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 free west that we think we live in today half of it is built off straight up textbook communist manifesto ideology yep and we did our 10 points in there which i encourage people to read when they get the book like that we push back on that Yes, and this and this continues to build into the next chapter, which I really liked. And I don't want to I don't want to spoil it for people, but I, I did want to give the readers a good the listeners a good sense of like what it is that you're trying to do in this book. And what I think you're successful at doing is you know stating a statement of beliefs that I think a lot of men, um, myself included, can get behind of 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 a statement to make against first of all against the communism that surrounds us and that we're living within increasingly. But also a statement of of beliefs about how we should be living. So a, a negative affirmation that not this, and a positive affirmation this. So I don't want to spoil the whole book for people, but I, I think that there's so many good ideas in what you have, especially in the next chapter, which is capitalism's phantom variations, where you lay out, you know, what we've been told what we have versus what we what we actually have. So maybe we'll go over mm-hmm. that, and then and then we'll sort of hint a little bit of what's at the 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 last chapter of the individual in relation to the state, and then we'll kind of leave it there uh-huh. and. and uh, and let people go go on the adventure of the uncommunist manifesto for themselves. Totally, totally. So, yeah, I think the as you sort of said at the outset, the word capitalism has been co-opted and mm. dirtied and it's so loaded now that people confuse it with all sorts of things. And I think we did a good job in the beginning with uh, depoliticizing the word itself, number one, and kind of taking, t- trying to remove the stigma there. But what we also did, and this is the name of you know, the, the chapter, is the as you said, the phantom variations of capitalism, is that we looked at all these other things that people try and frame as capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the big one today is cronyism, and a lot of things come under that, like you know, oligopolies and monopolies and technocracies and all this sort of stuff kind of sits under cronyism. And, and that's basically it, you know, yes, has elements of capitalist process like it's basically a a less 
suffocated version of natural existence, right? Mm -hmm. But it is very good at finding the particular levers to pull so that you can cheat in the mm -hmm. game um, and amass you know, disproportionate capital and wealth by cheating. That, that's effectively what cronyism is. And while you're playing the game of cronyism, particularly in the early days, man, it's like the winning strategy. <laughs> like yeah. you make a bucket load of money and you amass a bucket load of power. But the problem is, is that it decays the, the, um, the civilization itself. So at some point, it's time to pay the piper. And I think that's where sort of we are, you know, somewhere between now and the next 10, maybe 20 years at the outside, you know, we're at kind of the end of the tether of cronyism. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, America's kind of the, the, the focal point of all of that is that it was this, you know, for a period, America was much more closer to kind of like organic capitalism. Like there was no federal government, you know, like there was these frontiersmen building and creating and, you know, respecting private property and all this sort of stuff. Like there was that there and America was incredibly successful. And this cronyism has just sort of seeped in, seeped in, seeped in. And, you know, we've got to a point where we live in a complete cronyist establishment, but you know, there was that we, we talked about, um, uh, what was another one? Uh, colonialism. Mm -hmm. And this one straight up, I mean, capitalism is fundamentally built on a respect for private property. Um, tell me which part of colonialism is a respect for private property. Right. None of it. So it's, it's like, it's incompatible. So, so don't, you know, when people come out and tell me, it's like, oh, you know, you, you know, colonialist, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, no, it's, it's incompatible. Now, mind you, you know, there was, there was obviously some positive things in colonialism. So I don't want to sound like a complete, like, Muppet, wow. when I, um, when I, you know, bash colonialism, like there, there was a lot wrong, but you know what, there was, there was a lot also right. Like there was, you know, ideas spread during that period, commerce spread, right. like, uh, civilization spread now wasn't clean. <laughs> there was a lot of damage done. You know, there was a lot of disrespect for private property and natural resources and things like that. And, you know, could it have been done better? Absolutely. But I mean, this is the messy nature of human beings of history rising up. You know, this is this is what we yeah. did, um, and now it's it's on us. The responsibility is on us to do this better and cleaner and more righteously. Use the word you used before. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the it's it's a very difficult, and this is why I it's sort of to bring it full circle. Why I appreciate you, you telling your story. And and because it parallels with mine as well is is somehow sometimes we have to learn what the right thing is by trying a whole lot of wrong things right yeah. exactly yeah. and so that's that's I think you know it's exciting to kind of live at this moment because we're given this one last really wrong thing communism we're gonna we're give, we're giving this a try apparently just to say like you know what maybe we don't need to do that maybe there's a better way to go about doing things truly man it's. I think, I mean, it's the classic saying, it's like, you know, the, the night is darkest before the dawn, mm -hmm. right? So, and, and this is where, once again, to echo what you said earlier about preparing, like, this is where it's incumbent on the men in the world to really prepare, despite 
being attacked despite despite being called toxic despite being you know positioned as the plague of the earth and mm-hmm. you know, aggression is bad and sort of stuff like it is incumbent on us to rise above all those labels and to actually prepare now because you know the 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 night is going to be darkest before the mm-hmm. dawn and you know i've 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 said many times that in in many ways we're going to be the founding fathers of this new age mm. and i don't mean new age in some you know stupid spiritual hippie you... age obviously i think people get that yeah. <laughs> at this point but like this this new chapter of civilization is that we'll be the founding fathers now we kind of drew the short straw but also like we're we're blessed and cursed because you know we're I guess we're cursed that we're going to have to endure mm-hmm. the clown world and we're going to have to really um, see some ugly, stupid, like completely mindless things along the way. We're like, I mean, every time I think the world just can't get dumber than it is right now. It's trying. I open up Twitter. And I open up Twitter and I'm proven wrong. Yeah. I'm like, okay, we just got dumber. <laughs> like it's just. Like never fails, so we're gonna have to endure that, and and I'm sure that there's gonna be, you know, much as I hate to say this, that some of us may end up being casualties or martyrs yeah. along the way because that's the nature of these things. Um, but we will also get to be the ones who set the frame and the stage for the next five thousand, ten thousand years of human civilization. Like I think that's how important this period this inflection point is and i mean just even saying that brings chills down my spine it's like that is like a that is a tall order man Mm -hmm. like it is and it's going to require a level of man to emerge that we haven't seen for hundreds of years maybe longer i don't know um yeah at least hundreds of years maybe thousands of years Mm -hmm. and you know being being able to sort of you know, some people might listen to this and say these these guys are fucking lunatics, and I'll take that on. I don't give a Same. fuck. Like this is how important I think this is, and I um, you know, it it's humbling, and um, I'm grateful to know that there are people like you and others on this sort of journey that you know we we're doing something meaningful. And fuck, man, what? what, what why else live life if not to live a life of meaning? Honestly, like. So anyway. Amen. Thank you. Well, that's 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 beautiful and brilliant. I really appreciate you saying that because I, I I'm very grateful um, to be on this journey with with you as well and to have covered so much ground and so many different so many different subjects and um and so just thank you very much for this and I, I know you've had a really long day as well so thanks for going on with me on this uh, epic marathon of a conversation and and uh, just to, just to the listeners you know some of the you paint the picture of the kind of world that you want to live in in the back half of the book so i'll just invite listeners to go and pick up the uncommunist manifesto and and find out what uh alex's vision for the future might be thank you for that i really appreciate that so uh where can men go to find out more about you and what you do so i have updated my twitter handle recently um it's called svetsky writes uh so like writing um, W-R-I-T-E-S, I believe. My brain is fried enough today. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure it'll be in the show notes. But um, yeah, uncommunist.com is the is the website for the book. Uh, we've got like some bonuses and stuff like that that we're giving out for people who pop their email in, obviously. Just want to stay in touch with people and kind of build this into a 
into kind of like a movement of sorts um, because we want people to be uncommunist, like simple as that. Um, and, and, I, and I think it's got some meme ability mm-hmm. and there's, uh, you know, so Twitter, Svetsky writes, uncommunist.com. Um, and then I've got a link tree, linktree.com forward slash Svetsky. There's like a whole bunch of links to everything. Depending on when this goes out, the book will go live on Amazon on the 1st of August. Mm-hmm. And what I encourage people to do is for the first 36 hours, I think we're going to offer the book up on Kindle really cheap because what we're looking for is um, is verified reviews on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we get somewhere between 50 to 100 of those, I think, in the first week, I guess, you know, me, this is me thinking about how to hack the algorithm a little bit. But if we if we land that, if we, if the book lands strongly in the first week, I think we'll hit a bestseller list. Mm-hmm. And if we do, obviously, the book spreads far and wide. And I, and I think just the, the important thing about this book is that I, we did a good job capturing the zeitgeist of the time. Mm-hmm. And I guess this idea of like, being resistant to broad compliance and communism and all these cancers that are pervading the world. I think being resistant to that is the actual zeitgeist. This is the true zeitgeist of, 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 of our age. And I really hope like the communist manifesto has been one of the most widely read economic and political books in history, mm-hmm. apparently insane. Mm-hmm. Like, and you know, the hope is that this may one day, 50, 100 years from now, also be that, but do it from a place of, you know, hope, prosperity, responsibility, freedom, like liberty, like those kind of ideas, not be a message of fucking entitlement and stupidity and envy, which is effectively what the Communist Manifesto is. It's 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 like a... It's a short academic justification for mental entropy and behavioral uh, immorality. Like that's literally all it is. It just makes an academic justification for being the worst version of yourself. Go out, complain, and take shit from other people. There's the communist manifesto. Whereas the uncommunist is go out, become a better version of yourself, produce something, and cooperate with others. I think that's a better message. Completely aligned completely aligned and i highly recommend the book to everybody so um thank you so much for for all your time today alex and for all the brilliant insights and thoughts and um yeah i'm just really grateful for this conversation and and to be walking this journey forward with you 100 percent, man i'm so glad we we bumped into each other actually that (laughs) and and the way we did right oh that's right i was looking for renaissance of man as a as a as a domain name (laughs) and i'm like fuck someone took it and then i found you and i'm like oh Who's this guy? And I like looked you up and then I'm like, I'll follow him on Twitter. And I'm like, oh, fuck, he follows me. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Yeah, thank you for telling me that story. You, you hinted at some of that. That's great. It's like, oh, what, what are the odds we found each other through registered domain names? Yeah, for sure. Oh, perfect. Classic. All right, well, thanks, man. Have a great one. I will. Thank you, bye.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.